Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Can't Let Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Sam Van Hoffelgen. Sam recently moved from the great state of California to the even greater state of Tennessee for reasons we discussed in the podcast, which was partly why I wanted to have him on, but also because he's an expert on and passionate about Civil War history, how it has shaped our nation, the effects of this day, and so forth. And man, this one was fun. Was. Uh, yeah, it definitely was. And thanks for the connection, Andrew. You're the one that got him on. You're welcome. Yeah, appreciate it. So please now go rate or review this podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already, and if you would, please. And you may want to also check out the show on YouTube. Just search Can't Lab Podcast on YouTube and maybe subscribe there as well. Thank you. So without any further ado, we give you our conversation with Sam Van Hoffigan. Please enjoy. <laughs> Sam. Oh. <laughs> we go, my man. All right. Welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Hey, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, can, you, can you guess? Can you give me a good a shot before, uh, I, before I tell you? Van Hoffwigen. Yeah, that was it, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, now where is it from is, is the next question. Uh, Van Hoffwigen, that's going to be, you're going to have some German influences on that. Uh, I guess that's true indirectly, but you're wrong, actually, no. The, the, well, the reason I said German influences yeah. was not so much because of the last name, but just because I feel like that's one of the safest guesses. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. But, but German's Vaughn, yeah, so up. V-O-N. Okay. Yeah, so, so this is a V-A-N, and if you're a cultured mm. man, I'm not. you would know <laughs> that V-A-N means of, which is the, the language of, of, this, of this country, which is the okay. Netherlands, Dutch. Oh, okay. So, so I wasn't so far off then. Uh, no, no, it's pretty, pretty good, but yeah, I like it. Van Hoffigan. I think. You get enough? Yeah. All right. For those listening in on the podcast and and not watching on YouTube, we're just lighting up a couple of cigars right now. So, go to our YouTube channel. You'll see it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, welcome to Nashville. So, when did you move here? I moved here late uh, May of 2020. Yeah, so about May, May of like 2020. May 18th or something like that and started yep. a job June 1st. Okay, congratulations cuz you're are now are you did you move here out of your own choice or did Amazon move you here as part of the new Amazon outpost that's hiring 5,000 people downtown? Right. No, yeah, it was my own choice. So I, I had uh, applied for the job in Nashville. It was a Nashville job. Okay. Yeah, so I moved for the job. Where where were you working before that? I was working in an MSP in Orange County, which is like a um a company that outsources IT support for small, medium-sized businesses. So mm-hmm. I was doing that, and then, and so I wasn't working at Amazon at the time. I see. Yeah. So did you want to work at Amazon, and the best way to work at Amazon happened to be in Nashville, or did you want to get out of California, come to Nashville, and then you were just looking for a job in locally? Get out of California. Yeah. So I was looking. I was looking at a job, and, and and Amazon's probably one of the the big guys that. Are, is super um, down with hiring people out, out of state. They, yeah. Like if you, if they have out of state um, uh, up, up applicants, they they don't even look twice at it. They'll, really? They'll, yeah, yeah. They do all the time. That's why they moved to, to to cities like Austin and Nashville. Okay. Because they can recruit people from all over the world, and they don't move to Detroit because so they can they can uh, convince like really high dollar, high skilled employees that you can't find anywhere else to come to a city that everyone wants to go to, like Nashville, yes. like Austin. So it makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Amazon. So that's a very interesting point. So Amazon's not going to put a new office building in, say, Detroit, Michigan, and plan to hire five thousand people there, with hopes of them just, you know, wanting to work at Amazon so bad they're willing to live in Detroit. Yeah. They're picking cool cities or growing cities or cities in areas that 
they, you know, they know that the people that they want to work there are going to be happy living in those cities. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And because some, some of like the high, high upper echelon of like the technical talent, they're trying to recruit from other big tech giants and these guys that know, have experience that you can't get anywhere else. So these guys, they're trying to recruit and get them to move. And, and that's really hard. So they're working on these people for, for like multiple years. I so see. they can get them to come to Nashville easier if they're coming from Seattle or whatever. Okay. Or California. Just sort of like metaphorically whining and dining these people, like checking in every so often, yep. like you still enjoying where you're working, keep us in mind, like that type yeah, of thing. Exactly. What does I that remember, look like to kind of work on someone over a period of few yeah, years? Yeah, I wonder. I, I remember I was watching a video. It was like uh, this. It wasn't super famous, but it was talking about like recruiting at Amazon. They have all in-house recruit recruiting okay and uh, so he, he were t- was talking about that like this talent that you can't find it's not something you can go to school for but it's in like the upper echelon, like senior software developer innovation engineers these kinds of guys that are just like crazy okay crazy stuff you know yeah. so do you want it by the way do you want any bourbon to go with the cigar sure i mean yeah, i kind yeah. of feel like yeah i'd love that it's a good if we're going to be sucking on a cigar we need a little bit of oh yeah guidance to go along Definitely. with that this is a local Nashville company. Okay. Here, Guidance Whiskey, Jason Rajel. What episode number was that, Andrew, that he was on? I want to say 55. Thank you. All right, we got plenty here. Yeah. So you are here in Nashville, Tennessee, and because you got the job with Amazon, mm-hmm. what was the hiring process like? Oh, it was crazy. So uh, th- it was all it was all remote, obviously. I think it was easier probably to do it that way. Um they had, so there was one, there was a, a screening, a phone screening, and then if you passed the phone screening, it was more of a technical thing. Then you went to this, like, uh, this final day, and it, the final day was four interviews, four different people, like an hour each. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, um, and those, I, I think before the COVID, I would have had to fl- fly to Nashville to do okay. it. Okay, for those four, yeah. one mm-hmm. hour each final interviews. Yep. But because of COVID, even that was virtual? Yep, Just yep. I did Zoom? it all in my room. And, okay. uh, yeah, but it was crazy cause you're talking to, there's like escalation points. So like one of the interviewers is like this really high up guy, um, you know, that's talking to you. So there's, it, so it's, it's really interesting. And then they have these, these principal leadership principles that are kind of like the 10 commandments. That's mm-hmm. super important. Everything's based on it. So I was just, just studying that leadership principles, like, like for, for like for hours trying oh, to, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Cause I know what they want to hear and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So yeah. Now I, now I haven't looked at them in a long time, but uh, <laughs> I hope they don't listen to that. But, but yeah. Well, these, but also now yeah. that you have the job, you're living it, right? I mean, yeah, I'm sure yeah, it's not exactly. like these principles come up every single day right? or even every week, but you're right. still there and now you're part of the culture and, and everything. And so yep. it's just more natural now at this point where in the past you had to study it. Right. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's pretty so, interesting. So you did you have someone refer you or did you just find a job posting on LinkedIn or something and you literally just submitted your resume? Yeah. How, like I've, what's the very first step? Yeah, I found a job posting. So it was it was uh I just applied for it. I think it was the first job I applied for and it wasn't really ready to move yet. So I just kind of did it like as a joke. It was like and then I, I after that applied for like a hundred jobs. And then the first one that I applied for, probably the best one I applied for they they contacted me so you, you applied for 100 jobs at amazon no uh, other other jobs in nashville like, oh, wow. like going recruiters when i once i got ready like i'm, I'm gonna want to move i'm gonna okay yeah i was looking for other things so th- that was the first job i applied for is amazon yeah wow <laughs> yeah. so you applied for 100 give or take jobs in your particular area of expertise yeah. and amazon was either your best choice or the one that the only one you could get or however that worked out, but you were happy yeah. with the Amazon job. Yeah. I mean that, that, yeah, definitely. I mean, now that seeing, seeing like all the benefits that you got and everything is really awesome. Yep. Um, 
So one of the interesting was, was I know, so there's a sign on bonus, but if I were to put my California address for that, for, for tax information, which I could have done cause it was all remote. Mm. I think it would have been 60% taxed for sign on bonus. And so what I did was I put my, my Airbnb address in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, and it was 20%. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So that, that's the how different withholding, it was. Yeah. Yeah. The withholding on the employer side mm-hmm. of just the sign-on bonus yeah. in California was going to be 60%. They mm-hmm. would withhold for that. Yeah, yeah. And, and in Tennessee, it was 20%. 20%, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's like I know bo- bonuses are always taxed crazy. more. Easy, right? Right. So, and I knew that was true, but yeah. Well, they're taxed more, I think, because they always annualize your income, right? So, if you're going to get a bonus, let's call it five thousand bucks or a thousand bucks, whatever it was, yeah. they're going to take that that bonus that you're getting and annualize that out and project that as if that's going to be your annual income, and they have to tax it at that rate. Right. I think that's why the bonuses are taxed higher. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think I think it's going to be like that for the second year bonus because I'm getting it monthly, but this was a one sum, so it was taxed individual. Okay. Yeah. But in any case, it was a 60% yeah. comparison to yep. Tennessee's 20% comparison. Yeah, yeah. That's so, fascinating. And I could have put that, that address because I was working remotely. I could have totally put that address. So it's, it's really That is interesting. Crazy, right? So what, um, by the way, can you tell us a little bit about then what is your work? It's probably going to be over my head, but let's just take yeah, a Yeah, it's not super technical. So, so it's, it's, I'm an IT support engineer. So uh, I'm working on the ops tech first responders team. So it's pretty much like a tech support thing, but I'm working with in-house Amazon employees. And then I'm also on the team that supports uh, Amazon lockers, which are all those, those, those automated lockers that are in like apartment buildings, like in um, um, metro areas that people can deliver packages to. Also the ones you see so, outside of, um, yep. I've seen them outside of Whole Foods maybe. Yeah. Yep. Walmart's, no, probably, no, no way. Not no Walmart's way like, Walmart, uh, it'll but. be like uh, 7-Elevens and stuff like that. They're out there. Yeah. And then most of them are apartment lockers. So they're, I see. they're, they're managed by the property managers there. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So yeah. can you help us to understand, because I've heard multiple people have this question for a tiny example um, that we have here in Nashville, which is Dave Ramsey's company. He mm-hmm. has a radio show and then he got into events and now he has different you know, product lines. And I think he's employing, oh man, it's around 800 people, give or take, but he recently built a new office building. He has a lot of people there. And when you drive by during the day, at least pre-COVID, you know, there's just cars everywhere. And like the comment is like, man, how how does it take that many people, you know, to work at a place where it's mostly air and website? So now you look at Amazon and that question just gets like extrapolated, you know, to the biggest degree possible almost, which is, how many employees does Amazon have? Because it's a ton. And why does it take so many employees like to have a web-based business, you know, yeah. go, go round? Right, right, right. I think, I, yeah, I think Am- Amazon employees are about around 800,000 right now uh, worldwide. 800,000. Yeah, that's not, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong there, but uh, it's not the contractors. So there's a lot of Amazon contractors and indirect employees. And so if you add those, I think it's like 1.2 or something like that. Dang. So, okay. Why does it take 800,000 people yeah. to make a web-based business right. go around? Right. So um, so Amazon is is more than just our, the e-commerce is one of the things you should say. So so one of the biggest chunk of Amazon uh, now is the AWS space. So Amazon Web Services, public cloud infrastructure. So that's a big part of the company. Um, so things like Netflix is all, all of Netflix's data, it's all hosted on, on Amazon servers. AWS. Yeah. Yep. So, so, so Netflix is paying a monthly fee to Amazon 
you know, every month to, to rent their servers yes. all over the world. So, so that's really where their big, even if their e-commerce flopped somehow and was overtaken, they would be fine. Uh, right. Cause they have the, they have the biggest part of the market share of public cloud, which is, which is the most important thing for like the future of, of, of the internet and tech and everything. Yep. So, um, so that's, that's a big part of it. And then I think all the little stuff that Amazon has, like just Amazon lockers. So it's like this little thing. Some person had the idea a long time ago. It, it worked. They implemented it. And, and again, it, it's all free of charge. You, mm-hmm. uh, no customers paying to use these lockers. It's all, it's all, a, um, it's all just a service, a free service. So the amount of people that I know personally just servicing the lockers, right? All the teams, there's like at least like two, 300, 400 people just doing that stuff. Developers, um, the, the support side like me, like they call us to, to fix them. Uh, the field techs, we, we, um, we have like a, a re- I don't know how much I should say, but <laughs> we, we have like, I think it's Redbox helps us uh, service the lockers, the field techs. Okay. So all that, all that stuff, like every little idea Amazon has, which is a ton, yep. right? I mean, all these little Amazon Fresh, all these Amazon blank, we all, know, we all know them. Yes. Uh, we, we've tried to look at them for a second or whatever. Uh, those all have giant teams. Sure. And so it's, it's really mm. uh, amazing. And I wonder if they even think about that when they have these ideas, like, oh, this would be really cool. And the amount yes. of personnel it would take to just ha- keep that going is, is unbelievable. Yeah. What do you have there, Andrew? The latest, uh, I Googled how many empl- uh, Amazon employees there are. Um, this is according to Business Insider. Um showing their explosive growth as the tech giant prepares to add 133,000 workers at mid-record online sales. This article is from July 2020, so right in the middle of the pandemic. And this little paragraph right here says, these positions, in addition to the 876,000 permanent employees that Amazon employed as of July, could push Amazon's global headcount, including permanent, permanent and temporary up to roughly 1.2 million workers. Dang. There you go. Yeah. That's so many. Can you imagine being the boss for 876,000 people? No. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, that is, that's so many. Amazing. I mean, how, how many, I wonder how many direct, direct reports Bezos has. I you think know it I, might say actually. Yeah. I, I might know. I knew that for sure. I can just look it up and see how much he direct has. Direct reports. Like, do you think it's like a couple dozen? Do you think? Yeah. It's not more than that. Yeah. It, okay. It's something like that. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Bezos did confirm that the company directly employs a million. Right. Okay. Right. But like people reporting to him, I think it's like, yeah, it's like, like a dozen. Like direct yeah. reports. Yeah. Um, Andrew, can you pull up, because we don't want to get Sam in trouble with insider information. <laughs> can you pull up like, if you pull up like the biggest revenue streams of Amazon, I'm curious, because AWS is one of those kind of, it's one of those, it's one of those revenue streams that we don't always think of like yeah, with Amazon, so you know big. what I mean? It, but it's so big. And we, yeah. we often think of like, I mean, I, I do cause I use the Amazon app way too often. It's like, well, that's Amazon. You know what I mean? But right. Amazon is so yeah. much more than that. I remember I've, I've read like reputable articles like on, on Forbes and they're saying like the, the new Walmart, like, Prime version is going to overtake, and Etsy's going to overtake Amazon, and they're not even talking about AWS. It's like, uh, even, yeah. like, what you're not even going to mention that in the article. So yes. important. Yeah, it really like, is. Did it, you ever it's see? Crazy. Did you ever see the TV show Silicon Valley? No, but but I, I know the concept. Yeah, okay, yeah. You, yeah, you know the yeah. concept. I mean, there's some there's some um, scenes in there where they're in like these server farms. Yeah, and they're yeah. getting lost down there. Like, and that's AWS, right? Exactly. Yeah, because all these things like Netflix is stored air quotes in the cloud, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a thing. Yeah, but still, everything that's in the cloud 
is on a physical server somewhere. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Right. So, so it, the, we got to the point where internet is fast. The network, the global network is fast enough to where compute resources can be hosted somewhere else in the middle of Virginia. And then, um, it can do the computing power that you're, des- you desire, right? All the physical hardware, like RAM and CPU and all that stuff. And then, and then it can, it, it can transmit that over the network to you and mm-hmm. it's fast enough to where that will work. Uh, so, so that's where we're at now. And it's going to get to the point where we won't need any, any computer hardware at all. Like, like the computers on the desk, that won't be a thing. You'll just be, have a network device and all the computing power, everything will be a subscription, which is going to, uh, okay. which is going to suck for us. Cause why for Amazon? Well, I think like, like companies like Apple, right? Yeah. So, so it's not going to be a new Apple computer. It's going to be a new Apple like device. And yes. then you're going to subscribe to compute resources that is ho- are hosted somewhere, somewhere else. So you think that's where it's going? Yeah. It, it, but, yeah. but, but the only thing that's holding it back is, is the, the speed. So once we get, is the speed? Well, isn't? For, it is for okay. that, for that, something that drastic, like okay. you're doing video editing and all the compute resources are being, right. are being funneled That's over the network. Deal. Yeah. This is just like hosting websites and like streaming video and all I that see. kind of stuff. That's possible. Okay. Um, even, even video games, they're getting to that point too, where you can stream the, the computing power over the network. Right. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so here you, what do you have here, Andrew? Is this where it breaks down? Do you have a yeah. graph there? Invest, Investopedia. Okay. Um, the, some key takeaways is that Amazon makes money, most of its money, through its retail, subscriptions, and web services, similar to retail, what Sam was saying. Retail, subscription, and AWS, sure, mm-hmm. yeah. Retail yep. remains their primary source of revenue, with online and physical stores accounting for the biggest share. Um, their North American segment was the fastest growing out of all of its segments for the second quarter, 2020. Can you scroll up to there was a chart there I thought I saw? Right here. Okay. Okay. But that's North America International and AWS. Oh, dang. Mm-hmm. Look at that. So North America, revenue from North America, Amazon 62%. International revenue, 26%. And AWS is 12%. <laughs> but then look at operating, operating income. income. Operating. Oh, crap. Look at yeah. that. Yeah. 58%. Of their operating income, though, AWS accounts for 58%. Yeah. So essentially, you could look at that as like net profits, net operating profits, maybe. Because yeah. I think when it's saying income there, it's talking about profits, not gross revenue. Look how profitable AWS is. 58% of Amazon's operating income is AWS. Right. 36% is from everything in North America, and only 6% is international. So the North America operations are more profitable than international operations, and AWS income is way more profitable yeah. than anything they have going on. That is... And then the market, when you look at the market share of public cloud, so the other, the other two big ones... Are are Google's pl- public cloud? Inf- um, what do they call it? Uh, I think it's GCP. Uh, and then and there's Azure, Microsoft Azure. Mm. So these are the public cloud infrastructures, which are which are most one of the most expensive things to do in the world right now. And then they don't even have a a, a slip. The, the amount it's like eighty percent market share of, of public cloud is is Amazon. So they aren't even close. Eighty yeah. percent. It's something of the like public that, yeah. market share is Amazon. Yeah, like, like for, for, uh, for like cloud based services of cloud based services. So like like a majority of websites. Golly. Nowadays are probably hosted on Amazon servers. Yeah, that is like I total domination. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, do, are, do we expect Amazon? So I know Google is getting beat up right now by who? Who's beating them up in uh, in in government? Um, who's over these things? It's basically like antitrust. Yeah, like the saying um, they're a monopoly or FCC? whatever. It's not that. It's um, I just heard it today. Yeah, they're doing a hearing tomorrow about that. Yeah, like yeah. that's like a senator hearing or something like that, right? 
um, whatever it is, like the Senate Senate Oversight Co- Committee, yeah, one or of the, one like of the committees, that. yeah. So is Amazon? Do we know that if Amazon's getting beat up? Because I didn't mention it in the article I read. It was just referring to Google. Yeah, I think I think they're they're doing Amazon's doing a lot of censoring on their like uh, streaming platforms too, because okay. obviously they don't run like a search engine. So Google's always brought up because of the search results and things like that. And then mm. Facebook's brought up because of the social media. So like all the all the interactions is happening. So Amazon's platforms are, are, are not like that so much. Mm-hmm. But so, um, what, uh, well, just on Amazon there, I was going to ask you one more thing yeah. about that. Um, are you working out of the headquarters that they're going to build downtown? Cause that's not built yet, right? No, I think it's like halfway done or something will like that. Will you work yeah. out of there? I, I will. Yeah. Okay. They, they just pushed it back to June, um, up of working remotely. So I, okay. I have not ever been there. So you're working from your house yeah, right now. Yeah. I see. All right. Fascinating. Now, why did you want to move to Nashville to begin with? Cause you mentioned that you wanted to move to Nashville and yeah. then you started looking for jobs in the city. Mm-hmm. So why Nashville? Well, okay, yeah. So I think uh, I fell in love with the region. I think of, of the, the southeast and the, the south in general. Uh, that was a big part of it too. And I mean, so I guess I guess the the, the low the low cost of living, the low taxes, the political climate, and then like kind of the historical part of it, and then the natural beauty. I think. Um, I think weather was that a big factor or not so much? Yeah. I th- well, so so California has the best weather in the world. Yeah. Mediterranean weather, desert coastal weather. You can't get better than that. You pay for it. Yeah. But it's also the 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 flip side of it is it's it's boring, right? Okay. Everything's it's like one season. Yeah, one season. Uh all the trees are fake in the sense that they're they were planted there mm. and they're they're taken care of and they wouldn't be there if you didn't take care of them in that sense. Oh, interesting. Here yeah. trees are naturally they grow and they're and they're there. No one put them there. They're just there, you know. Yeah. For so so that was cool. Everything's fake, uh, and 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 to to have your weather have a little more character is a cool thing. Yep. Now I might get sick of it, like people say, <laughs> but yeah. The, I will say the winters in Tennessee or in Nashville, they can get a little on the long side, yep. but it's what you're it's what you're it's what you compare it to. You right. know, like we came from upstate New York, and we had winter nine months out of the year out there, eight months. Right, you know what I mean? Right, and right. it's like th- two foot of snow, one yeah. foot of snow. That's nothing that uncommon. Fifteen degrees. Negative five degrees, you know, that happened. So it depends what you compare it to. Here, it's a lot of like 35, 40 degree weather, rainy, like today. Like mm-hmm. today, today feels like it could honestly be a day in January. And so that's, yeah. so it's not, it's not awesome, but you do get four seasons. Right. And, and you know, the, I, I like the weather here. It has character. Yep. And you yeah. said Orange County. Orange County, So like, yeah. what, give me some cities. What, what were you so, close to? So Orange County is 10 counties. I was in Huntington Beach, which is one of the, which is one of the beach cities. It's right below uh, Newport and uh, and next to um, to Seal Beach, Newport, Laguna Beach, all those beach cities in Orange County. Um, and so, yeah, it was. I was about ten minutes from the beach. Okay, and yeah, how like where is that between San Francisco and L.A.? Is it, oh is yeah, it south so of L.A. It's south of L.A. So yeah, okay. you have you have L.A. L.A. City, L.A. County, and then right below it's like an Orange County, which is basically a suburb of L.A. So you're between L.A. and San Diego. Yep, exactly. Okay. Yep. Now San and Diego, that is that is nice. It's it nice, nice city. yeah. And it's it, really nice. What people know about Orange County is that's where Disneyland is. So Anaheim is Orange County. Okay. So that's really the, that's probably the easiest way to to look at it. If if you're going to go to Disneyland, it would be Orange County. So did you have any family here, or have you visited Nashville before? Nope. No, not not even. I had no family. I knew no one. I had never visited. And uh, You didn't visit before you moved? 
I visited last year alone, but I went to East Tennessee. I flew into Atlanta and drove in a big circle and visited like all these small cities, but I never went to Nashville. Wow. But, yeah. You moved here without visiting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Welcome, man. Yeah. Welcome home. Yeah. I hope awesome. you like it here. I do. Yeah. It's been great. Everyone's been so nice. Good. And, uh, I, f- I really feel that hospitality, that Southern yeah. hospitality. That's a real thing. It I is. think it is. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, how did you find, do you come to Emmanuel Nashville? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's mm-hmm. how you met Andrew? Yep. how did you find Emmanuel? So, um, I was looking for a church. I, I, I think it, probably the, the Acts 24 network online is where Acts I Acts 29. Of, Acts 29. Sorry. Yeah. Acts 29. Uh, it's probably where, where I found it. Oh yeah. Thanks. And, um, that's where I saw it. And then I kind of, I was just look, looking at some of the preaching. I think who, who sold me on it was Sam Alberry. Oh yeah. I think I was watching him. I didn't know who the pastor was or anything like that or any okay. history. So I think I just watched a little bit of Sam Alberry. Did you know Sam? Did you know uh, who he was before you? No, saw? I didn't. I, I oh, found yeah? out later that he was, you know, uh, at uh, uh, RZIM and yeah. uh, the Gospel Coalition, all that stuff. Yeah. But he, just the way he was orating the gospel was exactly what I needed. So yes, yeah, was, that's cool. Beautiful. That's cool to hear. So we lost Sam with visa issues. Yeah, but we're getting him back soon. Hopefully. Yeah, I can't wait. I've, I've never met him, but I miss him already. So oh yeah, that's yeah. Well, that's very cool to hear. I'm sure Sam yeah. would love to hear yeah. that. Um, Sam is, dude. He's the real deal, man. He is, um, I have so much respect for Sam. Yeah. And he is a master communicator. He's a good author, too. I haven't read all of his, I haven't read a ton of his books, but yeah. very good communicator. Seven yeah. Myths About Singleness is the one I read by him and mm. one of the most insightful books I've probably ever read. Yeah. And I read a lot. Well, he, he is also very experienced with standing up for the truth when it's not popular to do so. Yeah. He, he, was, a, he was with the Anglican Church. In um, England. Oh, right. And Andrew, you might know a little bit more about this than I, but my understanding was that the kind of Anglican church as a denomination over there sort of went pro-gay. Yeah. And Sam didn't think that was, you know, what the Bible was saying. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting about Sam, though, is he's public with his, um, like, uh, same-sex sex right. attraction. Right, right. But he does, you know, he, he will, you know, he, he thinks that marriage is for man and woman. Sure. And so that's something that he deals with, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's not going to act on it or anything like that. And he, like, he's open about it. Sure. I just find that that's kind of rare, you know, in like Christian circles totally. for people to be open with that. That's usually like, that's something that you want to keep a secret. I really yeah. respect Sam for being open with that oh, and writing awesome. books on it. Oh yeah. And then, so anyhow, like dealing with just that being the stance and him not being, you know, keeping that stuff private, him being public mm-hmm. with, with all of those things. Uh, and then preaching on those subjects and writing books about it, and then you know how he kind of dealt with the Anglican Church over there. I mean, this guy's like, he's got a backbone of steel. Yeah, I mean, he no, he definitely. really does. But he deals with. Um, I mean, he's a uh, is that Sam right there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I thought I was hearing him in my head. Yeah, <laughs> how it happens often. But it's not like the guy has just like a magical backbone of steel. Like he has anxieties and fears, like all of us. Like yeah. he's a person. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But. Um, he uh, he refuses to. I guess he refuses to move off the message of the gospel and the truth of Scripture. Yeah. What do you have there, Andrew? This is a YouTube video of Sam Mulberry. It was the first time I was ever introduced to him. I didn't realize who he was at the time. I just more or less saw this video on my Facebook feed. It was when he was testifying before a British court about yes. the uh, the message of Jesus on marriage, is how it's life giving and actually life affirming in. Yeah, in the biblical definition of marriage. If people want to look it up, just search for yeah. Sam Albury explains how the message of Jesus on marriage is life giving. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, so that's that's 
very no, nah, that probably won't play play yeah. well without it being hooked into the audio. We'll Wait, get till, there. We'll we're get get, there. Get, yeah, we're getting some toys soon. Yeah. <laughs> so that's cool that you saw Sam and yeah. now you're here. Yeah. So um California. Let's talk about California. Yeah. And states yeah. laws. Sure. Um kind of like Big picture, what I was looking up some stuff before you got here, and yeah. there was one video that was like 13 minutes on YouTube that I hadn't seen yet, but it has over like 2 million views. What's it called, Andrew? Fleeing California. Mm. Fleeing California, and it was put out by... Prager? Is that Prager, what? Yeah. which I yeah. think is a conservative It is, yeah. It's, it's Dennis Prager, yeah. Uh, but anyhow, the video was was interesting. So I'm assuming, you know, the video is made in such a way to reinforce their viewpoints or Absolutely, yeah. you know, direction they want people to go or whatever, their philosophies and polit- political views and, and stuff. Right. However, at least so far, what I was seeing in the video, it was, it was mostly fact-based, you mm-hmm. know, and it was pretty fascinating. What I find interesting right now is, don't you think that right now we have playing out in America sort of a real-life, in-our-face case study? of kind of my more liberal slash socialist kind of political viewpoint as as compared to a more capitalist slash conservative and which one is gonna like where is it working? You know mm, what I mean? Yeah, Can't yeah. we look at states right now and sure. see all right, well that's your that's your political viewpoint, that's your um philosophy and how's that working for you? Right. And then and, you know and you can look I think the two best states to compare is kept California and Texas. I mean, yeah, those are the states right. that are commonly compared. Right. Um, and with California, you have a very liberal, Democrat sort of, more left-wing. Um, yeah, they got I a, guess in some way a little bit more socialist. Is that fair yeah, they, to say? Yeah, they have a super majority um, in the in you know in the state legislature. So mm-hmm. it's it's a great a great uh, uh, experiment to see. And then you can compare yeah. that to a state like Tennessee, or maybe even a better example is Texas, and mm. and we can kind of see, you know, what's working and what's not, I guess. Right. And and I mean, there's always things that it's not a complete apples to apples comparison because, right. for example, California is like their biggest export is entertainment, right? I mean, right. that's the big one. Yeah, so I think and and uh, like information, uh, IP, yeah, intellectual property is probably a better way to say. It. So it'd be entertainment in the Silicon Valley, so all that kind okay. of stuff too. Good point. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, all right. So what are you, what are your thoughts on what's working, what's not, as you look at the different states and their political um, viewpoints and so forth? What are you seeing in America right now? Well, I think the question you'd ask is, where are people moving to? <laughs> okay. Right. So, yeah, where are people flocking towards? So that kind of tells you a lot. And obviously people are flocking towards those low tax, high growth areas. Which right now is a lot of the the um, you know the Bible Belt, the South, and then some of the Midwest, mm-hmm. and then going that way. So, and they're fleeing the, the coastal cities, and that's that's a it's interesting because that's a uh, um, unique thing to America right now. People like millennials are leaving big metropolises like L.A. and Chicago and New York, and they're moving towards smaller cities like Nashville and Austin or whatever. Um, and that's not true in the, re- the rest of the world. Big metropolises like Beijing are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Middle Eastern cities, like in Turkey, those are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but in America, they're they're actually going to different smaller cities. Pretty Why cool. is that? Uh, I don't know. I guess Amer- Americans are a little different, I guess. Hmm. Sometimes we... Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm not sure. People want... I think the, I, the idea of like that small town life, a simpler life, that kind of thing where you know people around you is revered and uh, and I guess idolized in America. Do you think it's also because when you look at internationally, 
like you mentioned, Beijing is a good example where those big cities are still yeah. growing. Yeah. Do you think it's that um, if you look at your other options of where to live there, you're not going to have a difference in laws or regulations or maybe even lifestyle? So, well, probably lifestyle because if you live in the country, that would yeah. be a very different lifestyle. But but you don't have the differences in taxation and regulation. Sure, like the federal system, like different states that have different governments. Exactly, yeah. right? They wouldn't really have that internationally so much, would they? That's one thing that's unique to America is you yeah, can live in different definitely. states and have a very different experience of the government it's in terms of taxes and regulations and stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. Whereas interla- internationally, I mean, I'm just thinking there's pl- places I like, I like being around cities. If it's mm-hmm. like, I li- I think Nashville is a great mix. Um, I also like visiting New York. I don't know if, if I would want to live in New York right now. But right. California is a great, great place to visit too. I tell yeah. people that all the time. California is awesome. I mean, it's one of those beautiful states in the union. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 it's the, the, the different climates. It's got the tallest trees in the world, the oldest trees in the world, and the lar- the the widest trees in the world. Isn't that amazing? Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of cool history in California. It's beautiful. Obviously, Yosemite and things like that. Mm-hmm. The beach, the coastlines, great places to live. But that's why one of the sad things about it about it's kind of turning into like the makeup of a third world country. It's obviously not that, but the, the idea of like uh, no middle class and that kind of stuff. Well, what's turning it into that? Well, it's it's so I think it's it's the politics, of course. Um, you know the difference between North Korea and South Korea. It's it's just politics. The people are the same, so it's, it's that's it makes sense. Politics does matter. Um, I know the trend of people moving out of California are middle, low income, uneducated class, and the trend of people moving into California are high earners, people like elite workers. So that's that's what's been happening the last ten years, and so that's that's eroding the middle class too. Um, but yeah, it's a it's the high taxes. It's it's um, it's things like that. Yeah, it's definitely politics. Regulation part of it too. I know there was a lot of people that were tired of being locked down. Apparently, yeah. Well, when did you move here again? Say, yeah, so five months ago. So so I I was you were gonna, out at the beginning of COVID I was out at the beginning. But the funny part it, or the the interesting part that I that I want to see maybe in like five months from now is the data of how how the COVID uh, um, epidemic pandemic. Uh, exacerbated people moving out of California or people yeah. from other other states too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what's interesting about you saying like high earners, upper class people moving into California, that seems to go against logic, doesn't it? Like why wouldn't they move to lower tax states? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I, I think, I think it's because of majority of the jobs in California are those, all those high income jobs. I think the high earners that are moving out of California are the business owners, like corporations are moving out, but like the earners themselves. I know there, there are cities, there's a city in Orange County that it's all, it's filled with just um, like South Koreans, Chinese, super, super like educated, super high income people. And, and there's no like um, nor what kind of middle-class like whites there at all. Like Irvine is mostly Koreans and they're like people that are extremely successful. And so, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon that you'd see that in that way. That but, is interesting. Yeah. So are they living there because they figured out how to get around the tax code in California and they figured out how to live there and still not be taxed either at their business level or personal level? Somehow they're getting around the taxes, like like having either yeah, uh, right. like their company's either international or it's in another headquarter in another state, but they happen to live there. Is that what they're doing? Or they're just, they're so... They're making, you know, they're so wealthy and making such a great income that they don't yeah. care to pay the higher taxes in California. Yeah, I wonder. I, th- 
that's it's probably both. I know I know majority like California hasn't lost. It's only the net loss of immigration like last ten years. It was only like like ninety thousand. So like it's not like even though there's there's been a ridiculous amount of people leaving, there's also been a lot of people moving in. But most yes. of those people are out of country uh, migrants. So and that are that are moving yeah, in. Yeah, and so and a lot of those aren't higher earners. So, but they are moving in because there's so many good. There's so many um, established enclaves where people can mm-hmm. go and and they um, places like Little Saigon in Orange County. Like so, um, and they don't have to. It's these these migrants these migrant enclaves that are easier for for you to make the move. So it makes sense, even though California is a terrible place in terms of like economics to do that. Yep. Yeah. But it's an easy place to to migrate into. Yeah. For for a lot of the uh, for the immigrant communities. I see. Yeah. To your point, I saw a stat before you got here. It was like 2017 or 2018, 700,000 people had moved out of California, but 500,000 people had moved in. Yeah. So that right. year, it was a it was a net exactly. loss of 200,000. Yeah. So people are still moving there, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. This this stat is hard to believe, and um, and I think it kind of speaks to the politics a little bit. So right on an annual. On an annual basis, California spends more in it's uh, what was it, Andrew? It's in the Evernote there. Um, California, it's uh, um, not Medicare. Medicaid, yeah, that's ca- Medicaid? that's California. It's California's Medicare welfare. Welfare, yeah. California spends more annually on welfare than Oregon, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, Idaho. Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Hawaii combined. Yeah. And that includes that Texas. so much. The and that big state, Texas. Texas. Yeah. I wonder what the population comparison is between California and all those other states. It, I, mean, it's a lot, I mean, California is 40 million. 40 million. Yeah, I believe. Of, Americans, of America's 335 yeah. million. Yeah. Yeah, so so California is about fifteen percent of our entire country. Mm-hmm. So when you look at a stat like that, is it possible that the population of California is equal to all those states I just listed off as well? And if that's the case, well, then of course they're going to spend. Yeah, you know what I mean about that much. Right. Yeah. So definitely. that might be one of those areas where the statistic is it's accurate, but it also is right. it helps the cause of that video. Sure, you know sure. I mean? Right, right, yeah. I th- I think another interesting thing about this whole the whole uh um in- interstate migration that's happening is people are moving for political reasons. Like the political climate. Not even like what politics are doing, but like just there's a gr- there's a great study I think it was done in the end of 2019. It was Berkeley uh, uh UC Berkeley into um IGS um the gov- intergovernmental studies and they had they had on that on that uh, th- that survey uh, like that 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 uh, that signifier like oh are you moving for political climate and they were baffled about how high it was and so I think they said out of all California voters not not just people but just the voters fifty percent have considered or somewhat seriously considered or somewhat considered moving out of California fifty percent of the voters wow. yeah and so the question that comes up is who's moving out of California, right? Is, is, are people Californying Texas, right? Don't California my Texas. Yes. Or, you know, is it turning that way? And so that's an interesting phenomenon because I've seen great arguments for either side that majority of people moving out of California are actually more conservative Republican voters mm-hmm. moving for political clients, uh, climates. Uh, but I think 
in that study, they had seen that out of, um, I think it was like 50% or 60% of, of very conservative voters wanted to move out of California. I think very liberal voters was like at, at like 20%. Okay. So it was. It seems like the trend is majority, and then also there was an exit poll in 2018 with the Senate race in California, Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. The exit poll showed people that out of state people that have moved that year. Um, so it wasn't just California, but out of state they they were uh, 15% favoring Ted Cruz. So out of state voters were actually were actually 50% up on Ted Cruz, which is really kind of goes against the narrative like Texas is moving blue and that kind of thing. So it's very interesting. You're saying that of the people that came into Texas, mm-hmm. that moved into Texas... Yeah, from other states. From other states, the majority of those people that moved into Texas were favoring Ted Cruz, a Republican, mm-hmm. yeah, over his Democratic opponent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So then, so then that would speak to um, there being not maybe a huge pressing threat on Texas becoming the next California... Yeah, people. Right. Uh, yeah, but there's still that possibility. There, there is. Has yeah, to people. Be. People have said is, is Texas is obviously becoming bluer. If you look at like the rate at like George W. Bush won it, um, and then like looking at like Romney and McCain, and as it goes, it's 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 lesser. They're they're winning by lesser points. Texas. Yeah. Yes. So, um, but I think a lot of it's drummed up by political parties because if you say that, it energizes the base. So they were saying, um, so that's a thing too, where it's not really, it's politically expedient to say, oh, it's turning blue. Like you need to try harder and we'll get it to, to go that mm-hmm. way. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think, I think they were talking about like uh, the, the TV ads that, that the Biden campaign was, was, was um, purchasing in Texas. And then, you know, it was like this big deal, like it was millions of dollars. So he thinks he can win it. And then like, like right after they canceled the ad, the ads, which there's no penalty to cancel ads. So that happens a lot of times where they, they'll, they'll get a bunch of reservations and then just cancel right after on both sides. It's like a dinner reservation though. You don't, you don't get penal, oh, penal, penalized for it. So, but you can cause a certain reaction, yeah. maybe even a chain reaction by announcing that you've bought all these TV ads in a particular state, sure. maybe run a couple of them, cancel the rest. Yeah. You never intended to to spend those millions. Exactly. Cause, cause, cause like in That's California, right? Everyone knew all the, all like the conservative voters, they always, we always made the jokes and complained how our votes didn't matter. Right. Electoral college, never, it's mm-hmm. never going to matter. My dad's like, Oh, I'm so proud of you. Your vote's going to matter now in Tennessee or whatever. Yeah. So it's really, it's, it's really <laughs> funny. Like he's jealous of that. So, yeah. but, but, but if someone were to come into California and say, wow, California is really close to going red this, this year. And so then all those voters would be energized and be like, oh my gosh, I need to vote now. Right. Because we could actually, my vote actually ma- might matter. So that's, that happens. It's, it's a political weapon. Do you yeah. know how many points Trump is up in Texas right now? I think I heard him say at a rally in Pennsylvania a few days ago that it was only four points, which sounded really Something like that, low. yeah. Yeah. You think it's actually that low? Uh, oh, man. I mean, because isn't that concerning? If in the great state of Texas, yeah. you know, a, a, a conservative... You know, right? No, a no, runner te- candidate is yeah. only at four points. That is that was surprising. To yeah, me. Texas is definitely going bluer, um, but I don't know if it is because of like Californians. It might be some of it is from from like um, uh, immigrants from Mexico, all in like the border counties. That's that's a big part of it too. Sure. Over the years, you can see like the county electoral map is that way, where mm-hmm. like a lot of the counties on the border are blue. So mm-hmm. that's that's a big part of it too. Um, but yeah, man, I don't know. Why didn't you move to Austin? Yeah, that's where my team is. My the other half of my team is in Austin. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, 
I well, I, I think I saw that. One of the reasons why I wanted to go to Tennessee is it's one of those states that have be, has become redder uh, over the years. And I didn't so, know that. Yeah, um, you know, so so if you look look at like so certain counties and going through the presidential elections and the midterm elections, it's become redder. Tennessee has become redder. It's one of those states that have, and there's mm-hmm. there is states that have become redder. But that's the thing is that um, it doesn't help the their the Republicans the electoral map if if the red states become redder. That's right. They need to make blue states become red or whatever, purple or whatever. Yes. So it's it's not the going to help them. But if you if you want to go to a place and you like low taxes and or if you're it's a good place to go, I guess. But so that's interesting. So you're in California, um, and can you pull that map off there, Andrew? Unless you wanted to point something out on it. There's a lot of movement on it. Is that, by the way, is that a, that's a, like a moving map of people moving out of California? It's a visual graph on Reddit <laughs> in the subreddit called Data is Beautiful. Someone made a GIF version of this map of where Californians are moving over the last seven years. Yeah. Look, look how many of them are going to the East Coast, though. That's sh- shocking to yeah, me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look the at colors, that. The colors are changing with the years. So you'll notice at the top it says California migration patterns in 2015, 16, 12, and it sort of recycles. The hotspots, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a good amount of, and for those that, soon we're going to have screen and picture, right? Very or whatever, soon, where people soon, watching yeah. on YouTube can see yeah. the screen right now that can't. But what stands out to me is that there's a, there's a little chunk of these people fleeing California that go to Denver. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch going to Florida, and there's a yeah. whole bunch going to the Northeast. That surprises me. Yeah. I mean, there's so many going to the Northeast. I would have thought... Well, there's look how many are also going up to Washington. It's only telling us that they're going everywhere. <laughs> That's true. It, it looks, yeah. I mean, I mean, baby. I think I think seventy million baby boomers were born in California. Seventy million, and that, so that right now the population is forty million. So at that time, seventy wow. million were born in California, and that that was like the gold rush of the 1950s, where the 1850s there's gold rush for real gold. 1950s the economies were, were were skyrocketing. All my families from Iowa to South Dakota, oh, majority yeah? of the families in Southern California are Midwestern, and we don't go back more than two generations, right? Mm-hmm. So th- there was there was a mass migration to California in the 1950s after World War II. A lot of the a lot of servicemen went through California going to fight in the Pacific, saw how wonderful it was and the weather and they migrated there. That's so, and that's, that's my, my, my grandpa was in World War II and he did, he, he migrated from Cal- really? California. Yeah. yeah. But he was from the Midwest. Yep. Mm-hmm. South he Dakota. Went through, okay. South Dakota. He went through California, yeah. fell in love with the geography and, um, and moved there. So back then in the fifties and sixties was the political difference not so great as it is now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause I mean, it sounds like if your family or your dad you know, um, saw California now, mm-hmm. he would love it and maybe go vacation there, but he wouldn't move there. Yeah, definitely. Is that accurate? Yeah. And I think almost every, like, like the circles that I'm in, like the conservative evangelical circles is mostly what I was playing around in. And, the, and those most, almost everybody had expressed to me that they want to move out. So, uh, but yeah, it has changed. I mean, they, Reagan won California Nixon won California in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, and they were from California. So there's that dynamic of like an in-state, uh, voting for for a Californian kind of thing, but um, I mean, it happened. It wasn't very long ago. Mm-hmm. So. Was there anything else that you like better about Nashville than Austin, aside from the fact that it looked like Tennessee would stay red, yeah, with more certainty and longer maybe than Texas? Uh, I mean, weather or yeah. it sounds like you didn't have family in either city, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, Job I, opportunities were the same in either city. I think so. Yeah, probably. Okay. I think I think what it was was. Uh, I wanted to be close to the Appalachian Mountains. 
I had felt fallen in love. Oh, okay. And then I wanted, and then I liked, I li- I loved the Civil War. So they, Tennessee is is the major battleground for the Western War in 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 the Civil War. So that was appealing to me to be a kind of around those areas and not be like in Virginia. Mm. So yeah, that's interesting. So yeah. part of the. Which is, history, is not popular. His, history yeah. is part of the yeah. reason you're here. That's not true. I mean, probably nine, like 10 out of 10 people or whatever that you, you ask, it wouldn't be the case. But for me, it was really, it was something else I had fallen in love with was that kind of history and not, not being a part of it at all. I have no ties to the Civil War, only yeah. in faith of being an American. But, you know, my family came through Ellis Island in the early 20th century, like a lot of the people on the West Coast. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about your family. Mm-hmm. Do you have siblings? I do, yeah. One older brother and a, and a younger sister. Where are they? So they're in California still. Okay. And my, my parents are there as well. Um, and I was, I was living, I'm 26 years old. I was living with my parents. Okay. I had a, I had a good job, yeah. but I, I could have moved out, but it would have been heinous. Couldn't have saved any money. And majority of people in California do not save money. Paycheck to paycheck. Mm. I was talking to like the CFO of my company and he has like, he has like he has a family. He's making tons of money. And he told me he was living paycheck to paycheck. And I was like, at the Christmas party last December, I'm like, okay, I got to get wow. out of here. And he was, t- he's from Florida, I think. And he was talking about, but it's like, if he's living paycheck to paycheck and his, I think he, he his wife was staying home, but, but he, being a sing- single income household was, was a joke. It's not going to happen. I mean, the question is like, at what point, at what point do people stop accepting the fact that the government's going to take 50%, 60%, 70% of their income, right? But Mm -hmm. isn't this one of those things where if we all just kind of flew in from outer space and we kind of scattered equally across states and some states are going to take, you know, you add up all the taxes, you know, income and I mean, all of them, payroll, Right. Taxes and I mean it's there's so many taxes when you break them out. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous how long that how long that list is of taxes. Mm-hmm. But in some states, you're gonna go to work and you're gonna work hard and that state's gonna take there you're gonna have about twenty percent of yeah. everything you weren't taking. In other states sixty percent, other states forty percent, and over here it's forty five and and over here it's sixty five percent. Like quickly we'd all be like, Yeah, I love it here, but man, that's sixty five percent compared to twenty percent, boom, I'm moving. Yeah. But there's this there's this it's like the concept isn't of like putting a frog in a kettle of cool water and he's comfortable and you turn the heat on and sure. doesn't feel it until he's dead. Yeah. I feel like that's how taxes is a lot yeah, of times absolutely. too, because we don't really just wake up one day and like, no, no. I'm not going to go to work and have 60% of my income taken. That's unacceptable. Right. I, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to work that hard. So when you think about 60% as a percentage of your income, that's one thing, but then think about working January through, what is that? January through August. Yeah. So you work January through August and now you've paid off the government. Yeah, and yeah. now you get to work September through December and you get to keep that. <laughs> right, it's right. absurd. Yeah. It's absurd when you think about it in those terms. Right. But but we don't think about it in those terms. We just think about it like, oh, yeah, taxes, blah, 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 ha, ha. It's like, yeah, sure. I wish it were lower. And we just go back to work. I mean, we're just like, right. we're just like mechanical at this, you yeah. know? But then sometimes you wake up and like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm yeah. going to move around and, and, yeah. and I'm willing to have someone take 30% percent of my income. I'm not willing to have someone take 60% of my income. Mm-hmm. But but then you have plenty of those people like that the guy with the family who's making probably decent income. Yeah. 
and apparently he doesn't want to move for whatever the reasons are. Yeah. And he's willing to go to work and have 60% of his income taken. And it's social ties. It's so, you know, for me, I'm a single guy. If I'm going to move, I, I let's move uh, is the right time to do it. But uh, I agree with that. People have so many social ties. My, like my, my dad wants to move really badly, but my mom, uh, her parents are still there. And, you know, so the people, people, it's hard for people to move. There's so many different reasons why. And, uh, and it's interesting because this is the easiest time in the history of the world for someone to move. I mean, it I was, is. I think I was, who was, it was one, it was a missionary that had gone to like, like India or China. And I think like a one way ticket, it was like, it was one of the, the Bible translators, but just to get his family, like one way was like $200,000 in our, in today's money. Right. Wow. So it's like, it's the most crazy thing in the world. And they're, they're on a boat like a lot of times. So it's like, and there wasn't any commercial transportation. So yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's the easiest time to move. And so because that's true and the amount of moving that's happening in the last 10 years, we're not going to realize how much it will change the electoral map, the cultural map in 20 years from now. Yes. It'll be different. And it's really kind of interesting. Do you think it will, how will it be different? Cause it's definitely going to be different. Do you yeah. think it'll be different for the good or it's just going to move our problems around the country yeah. or. I think it'll be for good, for the good, but, uh, it'll be for the good because yeah, like, like, like cities like Nashville are attracting a lot of different types of people, a lot of different types of, uh, different types of voters and different types of worldviews for a lot of different types of reasons. So it's putting everybody together, but because so much of our community has, has moved online, then you're still in this like worldview bubble even though you're living with other people so that's the problem i mean that is interesting yeah that's interesting because i'm of the civil war like like how different the cultures were between the south and the north um and how when it got to that point it was so it was so irreconcilable and so like you have this agrarian um, um antiquated culture in the south so so behind decades behind the rest of the industrialized west but they're fueling the the crop for the industrialized west uh, um west uh digging their own grave right before the civil war the south was screwed anyways hmm. and so cuz um because they're they're not they were industrializing like the other places i mean it was, it's unbelievable the the way uh, like the train station in Chicago, um, they, it was like the most, the biggest train station ever, ever. Uh, it was, it was unfathomable. And they say, why do you build it so big? In like 10 years time, it was, it was outgrown. So it was, it was amazing how much that was happening in the Midwest coming from the Northeast. And then in the South, there was like this, this culture that was a hundred years behind, not just in the way they think, which we're talking about, but the way, the way they were built, what their economy is based on. So maybe that divide's still there. People talk about it's so divided nowadays. So I think that's true. It's going to be true, but it's going to be in some, it's not going to be regionally, regionally divided because everyone's together in certain cities. So it's going to be, hmm. Okay. That's interesting. So back in the, even the nineties, if people would have moved around, you would have come in contact with people of different viewpoints and experiences and backgrounds and all of this type of thing. And, and you would have had more interaction with each other and you would have had a greater wear off effect. Mm -hmm. But now because of technology, because of social media and algorithms and well, Google even contributes to that. Yep. You can live, you can move around, people can move around, but you can stay in your bubble. Yeah, right. Because we interact so much online and those algorithms love to feed us stuff that we like. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. There's no there's no Mayberry anymore. There's like, like this culture it's like this sheltered little town. That's not a thing anymore. Because you can have someone living in rural like deep south or like in in, in you know in, in uh, um rural Tennessee 
and the kids are growing up with like super progressive ideals and they're getting it from YouTube and in the, like the internet. So you can't, it's not, everything's so global now. Everything's so interconnected. So yeah, it's like we're divided, but we're, we're, we're still, we're still living close by one another. It's, I don't know what's going to happen if there, if there would be a, a civil conflict, how that would come, come about. I don't know. See, that's a very good question. But if there would be a civil conflict, don't you think it would come about very similarly to what we saw this summer just at an amplified level? Mm. Like it would be like a lot of disruption in a lot of cities, in a lot of places, as opposed to sort of like the southern region against the northern region, Mm. for example. Yeah. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen anymore because yeah. we're all we're all living around each other, which is a very good thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not a good thing to be so divided. Right. Exactly. So, but but there's I mean there's obviously rural regions that that are very like different. Obviously, like if you if you drive uh, an hour east, you, you, the people people a lot different um, yes. from Nashville, Metro Nashville. So, did your dad move to California to begin with for a job opportunity, or did he literally he just loved the state and wanted to go move there for the weather and yeah? And so, so my dad, yeah, my dad was uh, he was born in Iowa. He was raised in Iowa on a farm for about ten years. And my grandpa moved there, started a farm, and then it, it didn't work out. Moved to California, started a farm. He, he was. He was in Iowa. He had moved to California, and then I think he moved back to Iowa. Um, but then he came, so the second time he moved to California, he started a business, okay, a flooring business, and then that really went really, uh, really well. So it was economic in, reasons. In Orange but, County. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. uh, no, I think it was LA County. Okay, but in so, the same general area. Same general area, okay. and so I think people were moving to California for the economic reasons, but also just like it was really awesome. Like it was this new place, and it was like the weather was amazing, and like yeah, I mean it, it, that was a big part of it too. It was just a really cool place that everyone was moving to. Yeah. When did you start, to, or when did you or they, yeah, start to see this decline that we're now experiencing in California? And by experiencing, I mean I'm most I haven't been to California in probably years, so I'm kind of going yeah. off of what people are saying, what I'm reading. I mean, it sounds pretty crazy what's going on out there. Yeah. Like, it sounds like people are fleeing so much. I don't know sure. if that's just the articles I'm reading or... Yeah. Um, but but the homeless, I mean, that's become an issue. I mm-hmm. mean, there's people walking out yeah. of their $5 million homes. They open their gate and there's needles on the street. I right. Mean, and there's people in tents and... Yeah. And I mean, it, it sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. And, and that it seems like that's like a conservative right-wing talking point where it's like, oh, it's terrible and there's feces everywhere. But it's like, I didn't believe it. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, but um, you go to it, and it's true. It's you go true. To LA. It, you go to LA. You go to San Francisco. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, the, and and there's there's homeless everywhere. Every un- overpass. I remember like the greatest way of talking about LA is that like I come off the freeway coming from OC, and there's a guy with a brand new Ferrari right at the right at the, the intersection, and then right next to him is a tent. It's a tent city right under the overpass, and they're sitting right next to each other. And there's this guy like washing himself in this gross water, and he looks absolutely insane, like a mental patient. And they're sitting right next to each other that way, and living in the same place. <laughs> I mean, that's so, it, it is crazy. Someone yeah. was saying it's a very well known comedian. I can't think who it was now. Um, he was in like a good part of town. And mm-hmm. this is the type of guy who would have like a multi-million dollar house. And he was at the park with his kid. And yeah. some homeless guy was wandering around with, he got a sword somewhere. And yeah. he just wandering around like sticking the sword into the ground. 
Right. And, um, and you know, he just walked away with his kid and they left. Yeah. I'm like, you, like you can't, people aren't going to put up with that kind of a quality of life, right. right? I mean, that's, and how did this happen? How did all the homeless, how did the yeah. situation come to be? I think it was like, in the sense that like, um, come to California, 1850s, there's gold to be made, right? There's this kind of like half truth lie. So everyone came and tried to pan for gold. So in that sense, a lot of like uh, vagabonds and like homeless people that kind of are like that by choice, they heard, wow, come to California. The weather's great, but there's a lot of welfare programs for, oh, okay. for the, for homeless and, and Ooh. there's no enforcement. So you could, you could, uh, you could camp anywhere or set up shop or whatever, and you'll never be moved. And that's true. So I remember talking to a guy. Really? Yeah. I was in the OC at a park. Super, super. What's the OC? Uh, Orange County. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Right. So I was in Orange County at a nice park in Costa Mesa. Uh, and, uh, a, a homeless guy was talking to me, really nice guy, had a Southern accent. So I started talking to him about it. He was from North Carolina and he was, he was kind of, it was so funny. Cause like he had come in here for that reason, but now he was like disenfranchised with it. He's like, Oh, I want to move back home and all that kind of stuff. And, then, ah, interesting. and he was talking about how like, uh, it was not as good as they said it would be. And he was kind of a homeless guy by choice, which I think is a lot of times the reason why, or they're very like drug addiction and, and mental illness. Yes. So, uh, but he was saying, I was saying, so, so he talked to homeless people all the time. It's like, so who, who, where are these people from? He's like, bro, they're from, they're from all over. None of them are from California. So I think California has 50% of the, of the nation's homeless population. 50%. Yeah. Yeah. About give or take fifteen percent of the population, and fifty yeah. percent of yeah. the homeless population. Yeah, and it's not because everything went wrong in California and everyone laid everyone off and no one had jobs and everyone became homeless. No, no, no. It's more no. because the state has such good um, welfare system that that homeless people move in to yeah, be taken care of by the state. Be, be, yeah, being taken care of from the state, and then also the the there's uh, there's no enforcement, so they can they can do whatever they want and they're not going to be, they can, they can, uh, there's no squatter laws to, to use an antiquated term. They, they can go wherever they want and, and, and it, they won't be enforced. I remember in, in, I was in Oakland, like San Francisco area. And there was, there was whole like beautiful brand new parks that were completely overtaken by homeless in the middle of these nice areas, just tents everywhere. And, and they've been there for, for months hmm. and no one's doing anything about it. And, and that's not a thing. I think so that was the idea. And he said they were from all over the place. He said, they're not from California. So if so. that's the case, then doesn't that give us some insight as a country into what would happen if we would do something like universal basic income? Yeah. Which I don't know really enough about to have an opinion on that. Yeah. And do things like to the extreme, like defund the police, which I know defund the police doesn't always mean get rid of the police. Sure. It can mean, it can, it can mean, we keep funding the police. Exa- well, I guess by definition, you wouldn't keep funding the police the exact same. But yeah. the one th- the thing I found interesting with defund the police was to incorporate more social workers. Mm-hmm. And when someone's missing a dog, or there's a mental health um, interaction, yeah. or uh, or alter- you know something like that, that that the police aren't going to those quite as quickly. Which sure. sounds like a fine idea to me. But getting rid of the police, we could look at California then as a case study and say that might not be a good. Yeah. Um, that might not be a good practice because right. this is what happens when we don't have laws or we don't enforce them. Mm-hmm. And we give people, I don't know, too much of a handout, which I hate to say, because a lot of people need, they yeah. need help, right? So exactly. we want to help, but if there's no incentive to right. work, then this is what you're going to wind up with. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It's, it's, so, it's so crazy. Um, and, and what do you... 
how do you, you, you remember like now, now where they're at now, like, what do you do at that point? I mean, it's so crazy. I know I, some, I think San Diego County did a good job with their homeless issue. They, they had emergency shelter. So they would, they built up a bunch of emergency shelter infrastructure. And then when they say, Hey, we have emergency shelter, you need to, you, like people that were building it tents, you need to go to that emergency shelter. If you don't, we'll, we'll throw you in jail, I guess. And so, because they give them an outlet, uh, and so that worked out pretty well, but a lot of people, they don't stay there. I, I don't know. It's, it's so, it's so hard. And it's just a sad thing that, 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 uh, the church, like churches and, and culturally churches were taking care of homeless and now they're, now it's not the case and the government's taking care of homeless and they're not doing a good job about it. So, well, that's a, that's a pretty good, I think, case study in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I feel like we do a better job of taking care of each other or mm-hmm. we should. When we care to take care of each other, we do a better job of that than if we go through the government to do it because the yeah. government's very inefficient. Yeah, right. Andrew, can you Google and see how many homeless are in California? I'm just curious. Yeah, it's because super centralized and yeah, it is for sure. To the question of, well, I mean, the thing is, if you're going to go through the government to help with some of these things, yeah, the, and you give a dollar to the government, like how much of that dollar makes it actually back onto the street to help people? Like right, right, 20 right. cents? Yeah. 15 cents, you know what I mean? It's not a dollar, mm-hmm. for sure not. Um, to the question, like, what do you do when it gets that bad? I mean, that's a very big question. I'm sure they're, they're working on it. Yeah. Like what, you'd almost have to, like, put up free housing, mm-hmm. offer them free housing. Yeah. But, but a lot of them don't want to be not, in it. are not going to want to be yeah. in it. Because with the housing, they always have rules like no drugs in the house. You have to do certain things, and people don't want to abide by those. Mm-hmm. So they go into the housing, they're kicked out, or they it's destroyed. So it just doesn't. It's it's like a vagabond class of people, which which have have been around for a while. But we've like thing earlier in the United States they did really crazy things. Like if you if you were found as like a hobo, they would throw you on a chain gang, and you'd start building gravel roads for like years. Really? For just oh yeah, it's crazy. I mean, a lot of the like the the like train um uh, railroads that were built like uh, in the frontier in the west were, were built by hobos that there was no crime whatsoever they were just sitting around just just the crime of sitting around and they were thrown on a chain gang for years yeah it's unbelievable well that was so one what, of the um did you find how many homeless in yes according to calmatters.org mm. <clears throat> at last official count 151,278 individuals are homeless in California according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. That's the highest number since at least 2007 and represents a nearly 17% uptick since 2018. Mm-hmm. Just 2018, wow. But what's interesting about that is, like, if the government really needed to fund free housing for 150,000 people, they could do it. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's not like we can't afford it. We can print money. We could yeah. do it. The, question, the, the, the issue is, like, getting the people to actually yeah. go live there. And when you say California has the best sort of welfare system, do you know what that is? Like, do they just pay people for existing? Yeah. And they get free money and how much? So it's like free healthcare, um, like, like dental and things like that. I know places like Washington, Washington and Oregon had that as well. And so they have a bigger homeless, like Seattle and Portland have big homeless populations because they heard about that, but I'm not entirely sure on that. So they're not necessarily, it's not like universal basic income. No, no. Paying them to be there. Yeah. But you do get free healthcare. Interesting on that note, I know someone who 
he and his wife are moving to California at the end of this year. Like they're running into the fire, so to speak. Like they're yeah. moving into California. Literally fire, yeah. Yeah. Not for the politics or anything like that, but for the free health care for in vitro. Mm. They wanted to have kids. And um, sure. I'm, I'm kind of assuming here that they can't afford the, I don't know, the health care or the cost right. of those those operations or whatever. And they're moving to California because it's free out there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there's tons of different reasons why people move for... So it's a, it's a, it's a big, it's such a big thing to think about, but yeah. I don't know. I think it's weird how, I, I think when you think of after the civil war, especially in the South, right, where everything was completely destroyed, like there was no bridge left standing, no, no railroad left, uh, left uh, laid, no field left unburned, right? Everything was absolutely destroyed. Like an atom bomb went off, which is what had to happen to win the war. And, uh, I wonder, so, and, and obviously, you know, like the, the union had 2.4 million people, men that were eligible to serve and they didn't serve. And, and guess how many of the South had eligible men that didn't serve? Zero. Zero. Hmm. So every single person, every single man, every single head of household uh, was affected by the war in some way. Uh, and all the industry was destroyed. And so they recovered, but some of the parts of the South haven't recovered yet. Like some of the most poorest states in the union are still southern states, Mississippi, Louisiana, places like that have not recovered, um, but some have have recovered. Like this, like new tech, high growth things like Texas and and Tennessee and North yes. Carolina. So, and now people are flocking to these states that were uh, historically destroyed, leveled to the ground, and had not recovered yet. Hmm. So it's it's a uh, I want to, that is interesting. Yeah. I want you to go deep on the Civil War for yeah. us. I do not know, I'm not a you know history buff here, so I want to hear that. But you just said something that was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it's, I kind of, like it could be one of those things where, you know, like we were just reading that stat there about how California spends more annually on welfare than we listed off, like how many states we list off, like 15, like yeah. so many states. And that's true that California um, may spend more than those states combined. But then if you also don't know the population of all those other states, it might be that they spend more than those other states on welfare for good reasons. Like it sounds like they probably, maybe they do spend a little bit too much on welfare or more than they should or more than they can afford or whatever. But also like you're only getting part of the story. Right. You mentioned something that was interesting to me, which is that back whenever it was, if you were a hobo, you were... Which, what is that? Basically, someone who's just vagabonding, has no job, just kind of living were, life out. Just If you, you were know. sitting like in the town square on a weekday and you weren't going to job, you, you could be taken by one of those gangs and just completely lambasted. In, in, into like a, the government? Yeah. Like that was a thing. The, yeah, the government yeah. would take you. So it wasn't like some rogue gang would come pick you up. Yeah, what if was, it was government or it was companies okay. that were like unregulated, people that were like building the, the uh, railroads and stuff like that. But like... It was the whole like, oh, brother, we're out thou kind of thing, where they get like on a chain gang. Okay, like, yeah. So, okay, so they were the, prison gangs, but they were also just like hobos. And stuff. Okay, interesting. So, so I was aware of that, but the context that I read it in, it was in a book that I read this summer, which it was the book was about racial inequities, mm-hmm. and its its point was that we had slavery, and then if you were you know a black man who who weren't it wasn't able to get a job quickly they would grab you again and put you to work in yeah, these gangs. Right, okay. Right. That happened too. Yeah. So it's, so, but it, it was, the, it was the case whether you're white or black is now what I'm hearing. Yeah. Right? It yeah. wasn't like if you happened to be a black man, you couldn't find a job. It was like, if you didn't have a job yeah. at all, 
yeah, I wonder. I'm sure. I'm sure it was was worse on the end of of Black Americans, but uh, well, it had to be because yeah. because they didn't have like that family history of mm-hmm. a farm or the family business, right. like. So it, but that it, was happening everywhere, uh, even happening in the north. Yeah, like as far as like throwing, you know, uh, with all the thing, all the all, everyone moving west, that was a lot of that was built by, hmm. like innocent people or whatever. Yeah, that weren't getting paid or. Okay, Civil War. Let's mm-hmm. go on that. Yeah. What do you know about the Civil War? <laughs> so you know a lot, and yeah, just for I the don't record, know a lot. before we turned on the um, the mics to record, yeah, I think I heard you tell Andrew that you got a haircut. To like throw back to the Civil War, <laughs> yeah. so you might not. You're saying you don't know a lot, but obviously right. you're you know some history well, here. Well, my, my fashion icons, a bit of a hipster, would be uh, you know Ulysses S. Grant and stuff. Oh no! Oh, but I there guess they, you, go. you know, haircuts were harder to come by in that in those days. So uh, you know, uh, you'd ha- you'd ha- you'd have long long hair on the sides and on the top, and you kind of combed it back. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't know. But um, what I don't is know it a about lot. the Civil War that that attracts you or that's interesting. So. To you? When I was a kid, and you know your heroes were were guys, war fighters like American war fighters, and but I hated the Civil War. I could I, I didn't want to learn about it at all because it was this idea of Americans fighting each other, and that was made me sick as a little kid. So I was much more attracted to like World War II, really good, the the good Americans fighting the evil Nazis. That was easier to to swallow. But when I became an adult. And like lived more of life, the complexities of life, how so many choices we make are tragedies. The Civil War became so attractive in that way because it was it was this it's such a great example of why war is so interesting to learn about because like the worst of humanity and the best of humanity are spilled out onto the battlefield. And it's something that, as a human race, we are we are addicted to war because of that. Uh, like the, the the humanity's greatest sorrows and humanity's greatest joys, uh, the examples of 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 the greatest betrayals and cowardice and the greatest honor and courage are all there in that same moment, more vividly than it would be in any other part of the history. And so, civil war is an, is probably the greatest uh, as an American, but even it has so much. Uh, People outside of America love it too, in that way. And then to know that it's still that the 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 problems going on are still part of the culture in some way, and that's very interesting. But I like to talk about the the soldiers themselves and like these people that they found a reason to fight, uh, and they they were trying to find a reason to fight even after the reasons they they enlisted for became a lie or meaningless, and they still found it like even after I think. Uh, after the volunteer soldiers in the union, this is just the union had, had, it was a three year term had expired. So majority of the army were volunteer soldiers. They had no, no uh, military training whatsoever. So there was some of those big fights like in Shiloh, like a, a majority of those guys had not even seen any combat had, um, had been doing like, like marching drills. Like there was, there was artillery batteries that hadn't shot a, a cannon once. Oh man! And so that's why it was so savage. It was a bunch, but it was a bunch of people like us, literally like us, just trying to figure out how to kill human beings in mass numbers. Uh, and so there, after that, uh, a lot of their contracts were expiring at the end of 1863, and um, which was which was the so so that and a lot of them had volunteered again after that. And, uh, and so it's an interesting historical phenomenon because why would they volunteer to do this again? And, um, 
they were the best fighters too because there were there were some guys that were like these 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 bounty men that were getting paid like thousands of dollars to come fight and they were terrible soldiers and uh the volunteer soldiers were the best hmm. and they found a meaning in that and so and the meaning really comes i think it's every every time in a soldier's the meaning is the, the the purpose itself is is you the pride and the the honor of being a soldier in and of itself. It's the camaraderie that people talk about. I remember there was a there was a guy there was a, a soldier diary that he had just left. He had to leave for like thirty days, and he talked about how he missed the camaraderie when he was back home on the farm in peace and safety, and he missed the camaraderie that he had with the, the people that the men that he was with. So mm-hmm. that is that is so much fun to talk about. Is it did are are you saying that was true for both the North and South soldiers, or particularly the South? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that was that was true on both sides, and so they, okay. that's why they 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 found so much com- commonality with each other. Mm-hmm which is so fascinating. A lot of times, like the instant uh, injured soldiers would always work together to try to get to, there's a great story. I think it was, it was Antietam in Maryland. And there was a big Southern boy that had gotten his eyes shot out. And then there was a, uh, there was another, uh, there was a, a federal soldier, a union soldier that he, that he, he, his member, his um, legs were, were, were incapacitated. So he couldn't move. So the, the big Southern, the blind man, man put him on his shoulders and, and the, the union guy uh, navigated them to a union medic camp. And they were, they, they were, once you were a casual of the war, you're instantly friends because you're, there's some kind of weird friendship that's there, even though just a moment later you were, you were murdering each other, killing each right. other in mass. So, so it's, it's a cool, and they, they made it there and it was, and they oh, both yeah. got, got cared for there. Wow. So, yeah. Well, part of that makes sense. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people that are like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. But, but when you think about in terms of you're entering the war, whether you're in the North or South, for particular, for, for these reasons, yeah. and now you're joining a cause. Yeah. For whatever those reasons are, but now you have joined the cause, and you're going to fight for the cause. And then you have the other side, and they're fighting for their cause. Mm-hmm. But you're both Americans. Mm-hmm. And when you're able and you're healthy... You're fighting, and, and, and you're fighting for the cause. When you're injured, you can't contribute to the cause anymore. Yeah. And so now you're sort of, now it's just me and you, right? I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. now it's just me and you, and we're both injured. Yeah. We can't contribute to the cause anymore. So what? I don't have a problem with you. So sure. why am I going to slit your throat? You, you know should, what I mean? Like or it's it, just a game, it, but it's a game with human lives. So when, it's a sport in that sense. It's a game. Once the game's over, it's, it's not a big deal anymore. You can hang out. But yeah. it's, it's, a, it's an insanely terrible thing. But your, your job... You're playing a game. The job is you to 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 annihilate the enemy, mm-hmm. and that's what they were doing. I think, too, the coolest part about the Civil War, the positive way, was that it was a uni- unifying force for America, and in some ways it wasn't. We talked about the negative parts and the terrible things, how in Reconstruction, ushering in Jim Crow, and another hundred years of injustice that happened. Terrible, terrible stuff. But one of the amazing things is is you had these two different cultures that had never ventured. Like the common guy had never ventured to the South, a guy, a guy from Pennsylvania or, or Ohio and other guys from Alabama had never gone to, to the North. And then that in this war of actually killing each other, they, they found themselves amongst each other and learned about each other. And it actually created the nation even more so than it ever had before. And wow, that's, it's an amazing thing Mm -hmm. to, to see that it actually created, it was the civil war is a crossroads of our being. And it, and it, 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 it was during, it, unlike any other war, and, and it, it was then and it is now. And it's a hell of a crossroads. And I think Shelby Foote said that. He's an author of the Civil War. It, 
I remember in Ken Bird's Civil War documentary, he said that, but it's a cross of, crossroads of our being. And so it's the, it's the heart of America that's there. And so it never, it's, you can never learn it all because it's this, it's this ongoing thing. It's this thing that's alive. Mm-hmm. And the people that die, their stories are kind of still unresolved. Yeah. Have you been yet to the St- Tennessee State Museum? No, I haven't. I, I, okay. I need to go. Yeah. I took, uh, this was a few weeks ago, all of our kids were still in virtual school and there was about a two week stretch there where I was in charge of my 10 year old and eight year old. They were coming to the office here, um, doing their schoolwork and I was mm-hmm. doing my thing. This was before Andrew, this is before we kind of launched the podcast. Yeah. And, um, so I was in charge of their education for two weeks and it was virtual, you know, so they were, they were online, but still, I mean, it was, I mean, my eight year old, he was done after like two hours. I mean, so it's like, I was helping him learn to read and all these types of things. And so, I took him to the Tennessee State Museum, and not a, not a history buff, but it was it's a pretty good museum. It's yeah. totally free. I heard, there's a lot, yeah. and there's obviously a lot in there about the Civil War. Sure, yeah, I'm sure you'd really enjoy it. Right? How do you? Okay, so then what's your take on the reason for the war? Confederate states, the Confederate flag. You know, of course, you have the one viewpoint, which is like, I feel like you hear this a little bit, maybe more from. Um, well, I think it depends on kind of where you're from in the state or in the country. But yeah. some would argue, hey, the Confederate flag is not the worst thing in the world anymore because it was about states' rights. Yeah. And others would say, yeah, that is the worst thing in the world. Don't ever show it again because it was about slavery. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? So so the flag, the Confederate flag was, was a battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. So it, was, it wasn't the nation's flag. The nation's flag looked very different. If, if you could see, Andrew could pull it up. It, it looked more like the American flag. It was the, the nation's flag. The, nation, the, the Confederate, Confederate States, States of America flag? flag, their nation national flag, was not the St. Andrew's Stars and Bars Cross that we, we know of as the Confederate flag. That was a flag in North Carolina. That was Carolina. a battle flag. No, it was, it was a flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's Army. It was his battle flag, which became, became so infamous because really the, all the hopes of the Confederacy was built upon, the, upon that army. There's many armies that were that were in the Civil War, uh, Confederate armies, but that army itself was was that. So it became that. But um, so it's it is it's a battle flag, um, and then it was it was a square flag. It wasn't a re- rectangle flag with white borders. Yeah, you can see. Um, so those those are that's a, a late iteration. They had changed it later once that bar stars and bars flag became more prevalent. If you wait, scroll up a little bit, Andrew uh, should show the other one. Yeah, see, those are the first. Those are the that's the first. Uh, uh, first flag of 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 the Confederacy there, um, which was just the seven states that seceded at first, hmm. and it looked ju- it, it was basically the American flag, but with with all the other um, states subtracted. Right? It really is, <laughs> yeah, right. And then and then one other. I mean, it's red, white, and blue, but there's yeah. just seven stars, and there's right. two yeah. red bars and one white bar in between. Exactly, and some and it's kind of like Texas flag, where Texas is the American flag, but minus forty nine states. It's just the one Texas state. Really funny, interesting. But uh, yeah, and then later, but it became it was so hard to see the flags on the battlefield because they looked exactly the same. So they changed it eventually. But um, so that's 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 the the historical context. So the the flag was used. When it, when when the the Confederate flag became known as like synonymous with with uh, pro segregation was during the civil rights movement and where so there's there's real things that happen with the so both both are true there's like this heritage narrative that's just there and it just means like Southern pride or it means like American rebelliousness like you can you'll see people 
you can go into rural areas in Ohio and you'll see, you'll see a Confederate flag and they're like, well, you, Ohio was a union state, but there it's like this rebel thing. So yes. there's that, but, but the, the things that really happened, the, the pictures of like, of people like protesting the integrations of schools and them waving the flag or the Ku Klux Klan using the flag, that is real. That really happened. So when you, when people use the flag for, for, for not those reasons, right? Like, like we see people flying it, they need to realize that that's real. And so there's real experiences. Um, and I know, I think the, the, the Ku Klux Klan started using the flag after the centennial of the civil war when it became more, more in vogue. So I think if you look at like the, 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 the Washington, uh, marches from the, from the KKK, like in the 1915 or 1920, they were using American flags. I don't think you'll see a Confederate flag in that, in that march. Uh, which is very, very interesting. That so interesting. now the American flag is, is not, uh, not seen as a KKK thing, um, which is great, <laughs> but they were using that too for a, wa- a long time. And then they started using, I know there's a great, there's a lot of cool stories where like, uh, you'll see like Southern veterans, a lot of like, um, in the, in the world War two, there were, there's like uh, Japanese forts that had been overtaken in the Pacific and you, there's an American flag and you see a Confederate flag flying over it. And Southern boys had gone o- up there and put their flags above things they captured, mm-hmm. um, which is really funny. Um, so, so that was all there, but it, but it became known as that. And then the, the KKK started using it and that, that, that's where it is now. So I think it just needs to become an historical thing. I know the fraternal organizations that used it early post reconstruction, like the United sons of Confederate veterans and the daughters of Confederacy, they had, they wanted historical control over it and said, don't fly it, only fly it in certain places that are sanctioned. And I think the reason why they did that is because they didn't want it to be bamboozled by, uh, like the KKK and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it happened and that, and that happened. So, so it, it, that, that's already happened. So it's, it's, it's something, it's been, it's been put into that reality. So I think it needs to be something that's just historical and, and, and not something that, that anybody will just fly, but mm-hmm. it's not going to stop because it's America and people want to do what they want to do. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But now, so I'm not well versed in these things, but when I see someone like this past summer, kind of at the height of the tension, a lot of it was the ren- racial tension, you know, that's yeah. going on in this country. There was a guy on horseback riding through downtown Franklin with a Confederate flag, <laughs> you know? And so wow. I don't know his motives. I don't know what he's yeah. about. But when I see something like that, yeah, I feel like, dude, come on, man. Like it was a white man, you know, right. I, of course, I guess. Right. And I just kind of feel like, and that guy hates black people, you know? Like that's sort of like, dude, or maybe he doesn't, but like, do you really need to do that? It feels like you're waving this flag in yeah. people's face. You're, you're, right. you're kind of throwing mud on people's face here. And it seems like you're probably not going to be um, it seems like the, the, the assumption is, I guess, like there's some, some racial issues going on or maybe some prejudices. Sure. Is that accurate or could that guy just be flying his flag because he's still into state's freedoms or something? You know what I mean? Like, do we, Yeah. is that a legitimate concern for someone who's walking around at the height of tensions that we had going on in summer with their Confederate flag? Or is it not, he's not, he's, this has nothing to do with race for him at all. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. It's it's hard. It's hard to know. I think uh like all the neo-confederate stuff that has happened um 
Like I, re- yeah, I remember going to like this big store when I was in South Carolina, like coming from California, the first time I've ever been to the South. And like I was driving right outside of Greenville in upstate South Carolina and there's this big like Dixie Re- Republic or something, this giant place in the middle of nowhere. It was all Confederate stuff. And so I went in there and it was just super interesting talking to those guys and stuff. But they had, they had quotes on shirts that like from Robert E. Lee that were just completely uh, not true at all. Absolute lies. Um, and I'm like a civil war guy and I like a lot of the, the Southern characters in the war, just like, like the Northern guys. So, um, but, so there was all these, all, all the neo affairs, so a lot of this stuff is based on, on so much historical inaccuracy. But if you, if you, if you say that, right, if you say that the, it's true also on the other side. So the people that look at the war, like I remember um, a lot of people taking down monuments, they'll use like in, no- in Knoxville, there was somebody using like war quotes from the mayor of Knoxville in the height of the civil war saying like, we're going to fight him till hell freezes over. And it's like, why are you posting war clo- quotes? Like the war's still going on. Like it, that needs to be condemned just like uh, neo-Confederate should be because mm-hmm. you're missing the whole point of the war. The whole point of the war is when you see um, in the, like the n- 1910, when you see this reenactment of Pickett's charge at Gettysburg with the veterans that were actually in the charge where at, at in, in 1863, July 1863, they were, they were marching in an open field as, as Union batteries were shooting canister shot, which is, which is a charge of 70 big lead balls, like a cannonball shotgun, that they were shooting at the ground and having it bounce up into a wall of men that at one time, like 15 men or so would just disappear like that. And I think it was like 6,000 guys just marching in an open field more than a mile. Right? So that was happening. And then the same veterans came, and as they got to the cemetery ridge where the Union guys were, they hugged as brothers. And, and, um, and they had, they're now, now they're as friends. And, and that, that is something we need to take from the war. Um, that narrative needs to be, I wish it was more prevalent, even though there's so many, there are all the other terrible narratives of war, like Lincoln, the hero we all needed, dying too early, and then reconstruction, reconstruction happening and, and Jim Crow ushering in and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The terrible stuff that happened, there's all the great things that happened in the war and how even like a lot of the runaway slaves that had meandered into Union camps and all these guys from the Midwest not ever seeing a black American ever and them learning more about them and hearing the, how they talked and hearing what they believed. And they, uh, that was this indirect way of where when emancipation happened, the, the common soldier fighting for the federal army for preserving the union, they became more in line of, of liberating these enslaved people. And it, it didn't come from the top down. It came from them seeing them like, like little by little and them coming into the camp and, and, and wanting to be a part of this, of this war. Um, and then, them them making it as individual actors, making it a part of about a war of, 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 of emancipation, a war of liberation. And that's a beautiful thing because it's Americans coming to, to meet, to meet one another and to learn more about each other. Mm-hmm. Even if one of those Americans was considered not an American at that time. So yeah. you're saying as black people were fleeing the South, yeah. coming to the North, joining the union army, yeah. the union soldiers may have gotten into the war with, a different sort of motive in mind, but mm-hmm. as they got to know their black brothers yeah. in this war, then on the union side, these in these individual soldiers kind of in their motivations and in, in their, I guess, hearts, so, so to speak. Now they're starting to fight for the cause of emancipation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When all along they were fighting in the war, they're right. fighting to win their side of the war. Sure. It just wasn't so much for emancipation. No, they, they, and as they so, got to know yeah. these, these black people that it came more about that. Yeah, exactly. I think majority of people that volunteer soldiers 
they had volunteered for the adventure. Well, soldiers fought for a bunch of different reasons. And so the reasons that the elites started the war for were completely different from the reasons the, the normal average everyday person fought, right? A lot of them fought for money. This is the best job opportunity to, they, it's, they could chop wood the rest of their life or be a corn farmer and they, they could join the army and, and make a bunch of money. A lot of them joined for the adventure. A lot of recruiters used that idea. Oh, the adventure going over the United States. Even nowadays, the army will do that. They have these really cool commercials and the great adventure, which some of that might be true or it is true. And then, uh, so that was true. And then some of them fought for defending their homeland and seeing that way, right? On, I think on both sides, but that Southern side did that a lot too. But yeah, they, it, 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 they, they, cause, cause in this, in the North, there was like the minstrel shows, which was like a, making a, mo- a mockery of like black Americans that was, there was a lot of minstrel shows in the North. So they didn't know, they didn't, they've never encountered, uh, um, black slaves like they, they would have, uh, be, they, they, they would have after, like they did after the war mm. or during the war, even before emancipation. So it's, there's a lot of, and they, they became, and then obviously that, that became, uh, even more apparent when, uh, they be, they started making colored battalions. So like 180,000 black Americans fought for the union army. And so, so that was even more true. They saw them 180,000. Yeah. So they, they, they saw them fight even more, uh, and seeing them fight, that was a big gift. So it, it unified the, the country in that way. Um, at least mixing, mixing that, the people group, four million slaves in the South, mixing with the North and that, seeing that way. So, mm-hmm. what, what kind of yeah. shows did you say they were doing? The minstrel shows? Minstrel shows, yeah. Minstrel Mi- shows. What is it? Mish, minstrel? minstrel. Minstrel shows. Minstrel? Minstrel, yeah. So it was like, like, like the minstrel thing? Like, yeah, it was like, it was like a sideshow a side tent show where they would have these comical characters. Uh, and there weren't, there weren't always. But it's it's the it's the the classic like uh, racial stereotypes that they have this like uh, black face that was from minstrel shows mm. and they would they like the 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 song Dixie like I wish I was in Dixie that was a minstrel tune oh but wow. was was played in minstrel shows but it was it was writ by, wrote by a guy I don't know where he was from but he was from he might have been from Ohio or Illinois right so he wrote that minstrel show and then it became the uh, the anthem kind of the South. So that was a minstrel tune, and so there were like these little shows, and there'd be there'd be a bunch of uh, funny characters that would, but a, a, some of that was making fun of like these funny weird characters that were uh, um, impersonating black a black slave. So that was a minstrel show. So they had those in the north too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what yeah. what you, what were the motivations for the war then? You said it was it was varying, you yeah. know, for the people in power and the people fighting the war. But what's your take on on the? Well, not even your take. What's your understanding then yeah. of the different motivations of this war? Yeah, people are still sure it's complicated. Pe- people are still debating it nowadays. Now, um, but I think, yeah, I think the South, the South had uh, had dug its own grave before the war. I think that's really important. Like I was saying, they were fueling uh, through cotton. They were fueling the industrialization of not only the North but also Europe. And so in doing so, they weren't industrializing themselves. So if the war never happened, the South had been screwed anyways. They would, their, their economy would have been destroyed because we, we got to the point where chattel slavery would become pointless because things like the cotton gin, right? Things that, things, things that manpower was needed for be, wasn't, wasn't the case anymore. So their, their whole economy would have been destroyed anyway. So they knew that, right? The, all the elites that had like the, the uh, commercial elites and the political elites knew that. And so when, when, um, so, so that was happening and there was moral revolutions happening in the North 
is really important. So temperance, women's suffrage, uh, um, abolition, obviously, and then, uh, um, prohibition. So there was these, these moral movements funneled by the second great awakening happening in like the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, where people were, people had time to be moral, right? It wasn't just about like surviving all the time. Now people had, people had like, like we don't even talk about like, like the idea of just trying to be more ethical or being more moral is a liberty in and of itself. People, life was better. So people, people were learning what it means to be, be a Christian you know, be an American, what it meant. So living up to ideals that they never did. So those were happening in the North and then the South, uh, was, was building its own grave. So once ab- abolition, uh, um, was getting more prevalent, they were getting more political power. Finally, finally a president was elected that, that was an abolitionist from an abolitionist party, Republican party. The South couldn't do anything besides that. There was a bunch of compromises, failed to compromise. We failed to compromise, which when politics fails to compromise, the only thing left to do is kill each other, right? Politics, the only reason politics is there is so that we don't kill each other by arguing with stuff. Politics is very, mm. a very moral thing, even though it's seen as so immoral now, if you talk about politics, but, but politics is a wonderful, it's one of the greatest inventions known in, in modern civilization because it makes it so we don't kill each other over arguments, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how it used to be. So anyway, so that was happening. And so once the, the elite and the, like the fire eaters in the, the South, they had to they had no other choice but to secede, to, to, uh, to, to, take, um, to, to keep the hold of their power um, over, over the, the industries, like the cotton industries and stuff like that. So they had to do it. They, it there was no, and, then, and it was at the expense of, of, of the, the normal guy, a person. They weren't the ones fighting, of course. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So it's almost like the, what is it, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. where it's like in the north... They could. They had what they needed to survive, and then they started to have what they needed to thrive. And as they had what they needed to thrive, and mm-hmm. your day to day wasn't so much just focused on just surviving and just having enough food for just that one day, or yeah. having shelter and protection for just that one day, then you can start to look around and say, "Well, what else is out there? What's the next step? Yeah. How can we make our world better? How can we make this country better?" And that kind of bled into, "Hey, there's some injustices going on, and now let's go correct those." Right. Yeah. And so. A lot of the, a lot of the the abolitionaries in the, the North were like super hardcore. Like like even throughout the whole war, they were frustrated with Lincoln. Like they believed in the annihilation too, but not as the annihilation of the the um, the black the black slaves, but annihilations of the whites, the white Southerners. Like they were they were there's some crazy things that went on uh, with like Horace Greeley and guys like that. Uh, and even like as they celebrated in Charleston when they when South Carolina seceded, there was people in New York when they found out they seceded celebrating in the streets too that there was going to be a terrible war, right? And so they were rejoicing at the because of the welfare for, for abolition that there would be a terrible war. And so it's hard because it's like this, like I was saying, it's like the human heart where we we have these these this sense, this strong sense of justice in our hearts given by God, but wanting becoming like radicalizing over it and how oftentimes it results in mass bloodshed. Right. And, and so like 650,000 people were killed in the civil war and people, some people have said it was upwards 850,000. And if you, if you take casualties, it's like 1.5 million casualties. And so that's people that 
killed, wounded, or captured. How does that number compare to American casualties or deaths in in World War One and Two? Yeah, so World War World War Two was, I think, like one hundred eighty thousand. Can you uh, look that up for me, Andrew? But uh, the the per- percentages wise is the best way to put it. So I think it was six percent of of the nation nation's uh, men died in the Civil War, which is proportionally, I think, would be six. It would be like us going to war now and losing six million people. God, yeah, yeah. Which is which is unheard of. I mean, that's and that happened. It happened in World War II in some places, but not with America. With like the Soviet Union, was unbelievable. But uh, uh, the amount of casualties uh, they had. But um, yeah, it was it was terrible. And and that's one of the reasons why I love the war too. Because when I when my heroes are these are these soldiers, the American soldiers, that's the most brutal war there is. Right. Some of these guys got, went into battles with casualty rates going up to thirty percent of their union or their, their brigade or their corps going up 30%. That's unheard of. Like things in like, like Vietnam and, and World War II, these terrible wars, the, the casualty rate for like a unit was like 3% or 5% every, every battle. So th- this is insane. Like, th- you know, going into a battle, 30% of the guys are either going to get killed, wounded or captured. Mm-hmm. And that is the most savage thing in the world. I mean, it's so brutal. I mean, people think about the Civil War, like these guys marching in the open field for no reason. It's very, it's not as exciting as kind of like this urban combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, us as guys liking that kind of that, that aspect of war, but mm-hmm. man, it is so brutal. And uh, hmm. there's some really cool cool things in it. Yeah, so. well, the numbers certainly line up. I'll yeah. uh, throw it up here, but I'll read it out loud for our audio listeners as well. According to battlefields.org, mm-hmm. uh, approximately 620,000 soldiers died from combat, accident, starvation, and disease during the Civil War. Yeah. Further down here is the, uh, the little graph that says, that where you can see it's 620,000 in the Civil War. Second is World War II Four. at 405,000. Uh, even less in World War I was 116,000. And then Vietnam at 58,000. And yeah. then you've got the Korean War at 36, and then Revolutionary War at 25. Revolutionary War, 25,000. War of 1812, 20,000. Mexican War, 13,000. Look at this. Iraq, Afghanistan, 6,600. Yeah. Spanish-American War, 2,400. And Gulf War, 258. Yeah, and, that, and obviously those are padded because both sides were Americans. Because that 600,000 is counting both sides. So that's why this is obviously so. Yeah, yep. it's it's when both sides, every casualty in the war is an American. So that that obviously is going to be more devastating. Yes, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, who was that Greeley guy you mentioned? Horace Greeley. Horace Greeley. Yeah. What was says he was? His I don't I don't know enough to to talk about him, but uh, he was. Uh, I think he was a journalist or something like that. But he was part of the. If you bring that, uh, bring that up. But he he was a pop. He was a, a popular uh, abolitionist in, in that day. I think, and and so. He was trying. I think he was against Lincoln's reelection because they wanted to get someone more hardcore in there. Hardcore, as in hardcore let's, let's win yeah. the war and then let's go just wipe everyone out in the South. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say, but there was definitely people with that with that uh, with that idea. So, no. and that's the thing too, like that even that idea, like someone fighting for a good cause, that idea of like this revolutionary radical. Uh, ends justify the means, uh, utopian in ideology, that needs to be condemned too. Um, because even though it's for a righteous good cause, and it was, but other, other Western countries that had slaves, they, they, they got rid of slavery. It was a cost, but they didn't fight a war over it. And so the Civil War is looked at as a moral triumph that we fought a war to end slavery. 
But in one sense, that's true. The other sense, it's not because it was a failure because we failed to compromise and we couldn't end slavery like, like the UK could mm-hmm. peacefully. We had to, we had to kill 650,000 people to do it. And yeah. that's a terrible cost. Yeah. So that's a great point. Yeah. I recently read a book. It's over there somewhere called the Clapham sect. And it talks about William Wilberforce's mm-hmm. instrumental role in abolishing slavery. And I mean, it took everything they had, man. It wasn't like, oh, this one man stood up and went yeah, forward and abolished slavery. Easy. No, it was, it was years and years and years of working through the political system yep. and jockeying and positioning and money and getting, like, getting people on your side. And mm-hmm. then you get voted down and you don't quit and you come back again a year later and you present another bill and you work through all of that and you get turned down again and you don't quit and you go on. And next year, I mean, it was like, you know, people were like their health was failing because they were so targeted, so focused on abolishing slavery and it came at a great cost, but it, did, it did come through the political system over yeah. there. It absolutely did. Yep. Yeah. And who, our, our politics failed. It was a failure of politics. Could yeah. So would some argue that, yes, it was a failure of politics, but that was because the the South or the North, I guess, the, but but particularly the South just wasn't willing to play ball? Yeah, totally. They couldn't, okay. they couldn't, they wouldn't compromise and they couldn't compromise, mm. right? I mean, they, they had no choice because I said like they were- They had their no whole, leverage? They had no leverage. Their, their whole economy was based on slavery in the sense that uh, on, on that agrarian economy, chattel, chattel-based economy. So, so if you say that, um, you know, they were all working in the cotton fields and it was doomed to fail anyway because- we were becoming more industrialized and they wouldn't have needed this free labor to build what they had. But, yeah. but, but couldn't have they have used that free labor to build cities and greater infrastructure? Like couldn't, couldn't have the labor just moved from cotton fields into more industrialized type labor? Uh, yeah, I think so. But I, I don't know. It's not that simple. And like the fact that like there's someone like in a, in a boardroom thing, like what is our economy going to be based on? But there's, it's true. Right, and it, if you it's build so indirect, so you're right. And if you build infrastructure for what, right. And if you grow right. your cities for what, like there still needs to be commerce. They found themselves so, in that situation over decades and decades of, of building the modern world. Yeah. So it's just the way it, where, the way it worked, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and there, so yeah. Who to you are some of your heroes of the South or some yeah. of your, your kind of, Valiant men in the South that you yeah. um, that you have studied up on, or that are interesting to you, or even that are respectable to you. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, I love guys like I love Jeb Stewart. He was a uh, a Virginia born high high class born guy. He was the the uh, command general over Lee's cavalry in the Civil War, and he was. He was this extravagant character that he was very much a cavalier. So he had a he had an ostrich plume hat and he had a red shawl and he would make sure he looked great before he went into battle. It's kind of old-fashioned character. He was very popular in, in Europe too. They loved him in Europe. And when you learn more about these guys, they become yeah, if yeah, you can see his his hat there. But he was he oh, was yeah, he's holding it on his lap. He was yeah. 31 when he died and and uh in the war, he was, you know, he was 29 and, but he, you learn about these guys and they're, they're, they're just amazing larger than life characters. And we know they are, but when you learn about them more, they, it, it's not dispelled. They're like, they're mythic, uh, on both sides. And, and, and the South has a lot of them like that. But, uh, 
he went, he went to, he did he go to VMI or, or, or West Point, but, um, you know, he loved Shakespeare and he was in, he was in, the, he was in like the Shakespeare club in, in school. So you have these guys, these like lovers and these fighters, like this, these full men that, that we, we miss so much in nowadays when we try to understand what it means to be a man. Like we see, we see both ways too much. Like there's, there's very passive, um, no backbone the guys that are too too macho but these guys were like these full men that 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 were well versed in literature and art but like were just were total um great fighters yeah so one of the one of the great his 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 whole story of his death is wonderful because uh he was right outside of richmond he had it was it was 1864 at yellow tavern but he had just met his wife uh the day before and then he he had um he was in a cavalry engagement with Phil Sheridan and way outnumbered. So right when he was leaving the battle, a, a dismounted Union cavalry took out his Colt army and took a pop shot at, at Jeb Stewart and got him right in this, um, hit him right in the gut. And so he had a gut wound and he, he was rushed back into Richmond and, and just bled out for a day. And his wife couldn't get into Richmond and see him. Um, and I remember he said, when he was on his deathbed, this is a cool thing too about why the Civil War is great because everyone, there was such a Christian aspect to the Civil War on both sides. So being a Christian is really cool to learn about that because it's so prevalent. It's like, it's, it's, it's one of the, the major parts of the war of how they saw themselves that way. So he, he insisted, can pl- someone please play or sing Rock of Ages for me because it was his favorite hymn, right? And so you, you know, we know that if you, if you understand the hymn Rock of Ages, like what it's saying, you know the Lord. Yeah, like it's it's so perfect in that way, and he he wanted to desperately hear "Rock of Ages," um, so and then uh, so so he did, and then he, I think he just said his last thing he said was, um, uh, "My my my service is complete, um, and this is the will of God," and he died in that way. So and mm-hmm. and, and it's 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 amazing amazing pictures of faith, even fighting for a side that had, had in a terrible cause, but, but found him as a Virginian fighting for his state and, and doing what he, what he was supposed to do. Um, and then I know his, what's a great, his, his wife couldn't see him and she didn't get to see him before he died. And then she, she was in mourning for the rest of her life. She was young in her twenties and she, she had, which she was known to wear black the rest of her life. Never, never remarried. Never, never was uh, was was over that morning. She was in mourning the rest of her life, and uh, like those kinds of love, they didn't read self help books on how to have a good marriage or how to how to love one another really well. They just seemed they could do it, and uh, they embraced tragedy. They embraced sadness. Um, yeah, I mean, there's this amazing characters, man. But so when you have a guy like. Jeb, and I see those are initials for something, Yeah, right? James Ewell Brown Stewart, yeah. Oh, strong name. James Ewell Brown, yeah. So when you have a guy like that, and he's fighting for his state and his side, and he's doing it bravely and valiantly, and, and, and in a lot of ways he's probably doing it like it's part of his services to the Lord, right? Like he feels like there's a, there's a duty there that was asked of him, and so he's going to go fight. Yeah, and he, then and then on his deathbed, he's he wants to hear "Rock of Ages." Yeah, and I don't know if there's a statue on him or not, but if there was or if there is, right? Like the prevailing sentiment right now is to go rip that statue down, sure. right? Because he was on the wrong side of history, is right. what people would say. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, uh, you want to read that, Andrew? That 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 quote. That's a great one. This is an account of his last moments that I've highlighted. 
At his, as his aide, he's been wounded at this point. He's dying. As his aide, Major McClellan, left his side, Confederate President Jefferson Davis came in, took General Stewart's hand, and asked, General, how do you feel? Stewart answered, easy, but willing to die if God and my country think I have fulfilled my destiny and done my duty. His last whispered words were, I am resigned. God's will be done. He died at 7.38 p.m. on May 12th, the following day, before Flora Stewart, his wife, reached his side. Yeah. He was 31 years old. Yeah, isn't that cool? And it's like, we all want to die that way, right? We do, <laughs> right? yeah. Like, like, we all want to be our last quotes uh, as sediment of faith in God, yeah. Yeah. It's really Man, cool. So, so It's so touching. It is, you know? and, I mean, and it's so, you read about, the, there's, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories like this. And it just goes on and on on both sides. It's, it's just the most amazing thing in the world. I, I, not to everyone, but man, I love it. It's, it never ends. But to what you were saying about the, the statue thing, well, they, there was a statue of Jeb Stewart in uh, Richmond. It was just taken down maybe last month. There's a hall, hall of statues. Um, it was a big 40-foot, 50-foot statue of him on a horse, and they just took it down. Um, so, I think, so I think with everything, there should be a compromise. I think the greatest compromise we could do for those statues is taking down the political figure statues. Like if you were to take down Jeff, I understand taking down Jefferson Davis, but there needs to be some kind of charity given to these, these generals and war fighters that were fighting just, they didn't have, they didn't have political bones in their bodies. There would be reporters asking Lee and he just, I don't really care. Like I'm, it wasn't about the politics. These guys weren't political guys. Some of them became political guys after. Some of them became, in, but um, a lot of them weren't those guys. They, their, their art was war. Their art was being a soldier. And so there's something, so they were being an American soldier in that sense. And so there's something to be respected in that way. But mm-hmm. they became these like figures that were part of like that lost cause mythos. So it's hard, but they're, 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 they're non-political actors. So taking like PGT Beauregard or Jeb Stewart, it's like, well, they, they were just, they were just fighters. Mm-hmm. And, and I get, I get taken down a Confederate president. That makes total sense. Mm-hmm. But I in a know. situation like Jeb statue, where was that? And where did it go? So it was in the middle of, of Richmond, like in the middle of downtown, there's like the hall of, what is it? It's like the hall of statues or, and there was all these amazing like these big, amazing statues. I think Lee's is still up, but they're going to take it down soon. They might've taken it down, but so there's all these, all these statues of all these like uh, generals and stuff of the, of, of, of the war. And so uh, where do they take them? That one is in storage right now. And so I think there's, there's like a historical society, Jeb Stewart's historical society that wants to get, get the statue. They'll put, they'll put it at his grave site. I get probably, which will be in a, in a field somewhere in a battlefield outside of Richmond. So it won't be in the middle of Richmond. It'll be in a historical battlefield, which is probably where it should be. Makes sense. And obviously yeah. the, the idea too is that a lot of the people that put up those statues were part of that lost cause narrative, that they wanted to preserve the South, that South did nothing wrong and that kind of stuff. So, so the context of the okay. statues were, were important too, you know, even though the statues themselves, the person that it represents maybe, maybe wasn't that, but, but the person that put it up was. So yeah. that's part of it too. I think, I think putting them in, historical places. Um, I th- also, I think too, mo- most people don't even know who Jeb Stewart is and have no idea who he is. And, uh, and, uh, most people don't care about 
historical stuff anyway. So that's maybe the biggest tragedy is, is these statues don't mean anything anymore mm-hmm. or what they were supposed to mean. I don't know. But. Yeah. There's an African proverb that goes something along the lines of, if you don't initiate the young, they will burn the village just to feel its heat. Mm. And yeah, we may be dealing with a little bit of that. Sure. Right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, but um, yeah, you, I don't know. You mentioned the South just being destroyed yeah. after the Civil War. Like how bad? How bad was it destroyed? It was just everything was just yeah. the cities, the infrastructure, the transportation. Yeah, everything was destroyed. Everything. So, so if if the South wasn't touched, it would have been destroyed anyways because the whole economy is based on slavery. So it would have been destroyed anyways. The, the economy would be destroyed. So that was the aspect. But physically, it was destroyed. So, so in uh, once once uh, the, the the federal army took control of Tennessee. And the South would, and they took they 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 took they took Vicksburg at the bottom of the Mississippi River, and they cut the Confederacy in two. So all all the all the the supply uh, lines coming from like Arkansas and Texas were completely cut, and they couldn't get them to the to the Confederacy. Where, 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 where was that? Can you pull that up? Because just because yeah. I when I see something on a map, it's uh, helpful. Sure. This is probably the most important part of the war was was the siege of Vicksburg, and this is where Grant got uh, made his name for himself. It's when he took Vicksburg. It was the last the last fort on the Mississippi river that was still controlling that supply line to where all, all the train stations would come towards it and then use the Mississippi river for transport. And so that was so important. So they, once he, once that was taken, the Confederacy was cut in two and that was taken the day before or the day after Gettysburg happened, the third day of Gettysburg. So it's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. And that was devastating too, but uh, they were probably just as important well, just can you go on Google Google Maps yeah. and, and just pull up where that location was? Yeah, Vicksburg. It's, it's the bottom of the Mississippi Mississippi State uh, is where it would be uh, right right before like the Delta area in that way. And and that was and there was a fort there. There was a big fort there. Like forty thousand Confederates were there, and there was a siege of like six months of a siege, um, and it was eventually taken. And uh, here it is. Can you zoom out, yeah. Andrew, just to see where this is? So there's Jackson. Oh yeah. So is that Jackson, uh, Mississippi? Yeah, Mississippi. Okay. So it's 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 not as yeah. It's not quite. So it's a long interstate. What's that interstate there, Andrew? If you zoom in now a little 20, bit. Twenty twenty east and west. I twenty. I twenty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a big fort there. Still, probably like a memorial or something. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. So that was sort of the last when that went down. That yeah. was sort of it for the Confederate yeah. side. Yeah. So so that that was it for the Confederacy. They they were were really hurt at that point. And so when when that happened, um, it freed up the armies of the North to go into the South. And so like um, they were trying to destroy the Western. So there's like a Western war and an Eastern war. So like the Eastern war, like Lee's in the East fighting the Army of the Potomac, all those. Famous place. That's the Eastern War. There's a Western War that was fought in Tennessee and all those places with the Army of the Tennessee, which is a Southern Army, and like the Army of the Cumberland, the Army of the Tennessee, which is a Union Army, and the Army of the Ohio, which is like three different armies. And so they uh, they were fighting. So so again, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, his famous march from from Georgia to the sea, um, and he he marched once he he took Atlanta, and instead of pursuing John Bell Hood's army and trying to to annihilate him, he just started marching east, and he wanted to. He found out what it means to make a modern war, where yeah, the the war is about fighting the the soldiers, but it's also about who's supplying the 
the who's supplying the soldiers. Right. So all those farms and stuff like that. He and so so he saw that and he realized, wait, we need, we're going to destroy. We're going to make Georgia howl, is what he said. And he marched all the way to the sea, all the way to Charleston, and burned everything. Just burned all. Destroyed the farms. it all. Yeah. And he he didn't uh, sanction killing civilians. Uh, that probably it happened, but he didn't. That wasn't his point. He just wanted to destroy the infrastructure. So he he burned Atlanta to the ground. He burned. Um, you know, he he destroyed he destroyed uh, every town and every bridge and every train. Everything was destroyed. So, and this remember this is a culture that if 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 you were a woman and you were like eighteen and you weren't married, you were considered a spinster. And then after the war, almost there was like 70 percent of women were were unmarried or widowed. Think about that cultural shock. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? What do you mean, a spinster? Well, like, a, like you were, you were seen as like weird or something because you're unmarried. The word spin, what, what's the uh, definition of spinster, <laughs> Andrew? That's an old, old word. Okay. It's like, you should be married by now, mm-hmm. but you're not. Like a cat lady is, a, is a modern way we'd say it. Spinster At is 18. a term referring to an unmarried woman who is older than what is perceived as the prime age range during which women usually <laughs> marry. Yeah. At 18. Well, but, yeah. Yeah. And I don't now know. after the war, you have single right. women everywhere of all ages. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. And the, the cultural shock that would have happened, what do those women do now? Right? Uh, and because um, there were some, there was places, I think Clarksville, they had like 500 or so fighters in in the Confederate army. And I think only five came back. Uh, oh my so, goodness. So you have 500 yeah. men that go out. Yeah. Fight their battle. Five come back. Mm-hmm. So five of these warriors are coming back to their wives and their kids. Yeah. And I'm sure there is, there is probably plenty of these 500 were single men too. Yeah. Yeah. But they had their but, sweethearts and all that. Sure. Of course. And their hopes and dreams. But then a large, a large amount of those 500, they were married and they did have kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, that's so heartbreaking. That's, like, how do you, yeah. how, how do you, how do you, man, how do you start over? How do you rebuild? Yeah. All your men are gone. They're all gone. And, and, and the, that was another interesting in the war is they found, they learned this lesson the hard way. The, fe, the army or the, the federal government learned this lesson the hard way is they, they made battalions and regiments out of the people in the town. So it's like, oh, you're the 20th Maine. You're the, you're the 101st New York. And you come from one town. You take all those people in the town and put them in the same regiment. We found on the Civil War that was a terrible idea because you'd have one regiment and they would disappear. Wow. They could be an open field going through an attack onto, a, onto a, a picket line and they would all die. And so now you have this town, this small town in Maine that has no more men. They're gone. And so that was change after the war. I think like in modern wars, World War I, they were mixed around. So you could you could you know join join the military in Ohio and you'd have some guy in Mississippi that was in your same like group. Sure. So they they found that out. That's a terrible idea. And that was part of the strategy behind yeah. how they put regiments together. Right. Because Man. before that was they learned that the the hard way. It was devastating. It would destroy a whole town. Wow. Like a mining town and there's the, all the miners are dead. What right. do you do? Yeah. yeah exactly. It's crazy. You want so, more guidance? So yeah, that was that was crazy. You want more? Oh yeah, sure. Oh yeah, it's called guidance. <laughs> it is. It's like you want more guidance. Yeah, yeah, more, yeah. Want more wisdom. There you go. Liquid wisdom. Um, um, so how, how did the South rebuild then? Yeah. Yeah. I, I want, I, I, I confess, I don't know enough to, that I wish I did about that whole history. Uh, a lot of it is, it wasn't rebuilt. It hasn't been rebuilt in some sense, but, um, I like the culture that came out of it is really interesting too. Uh, if I could speak on that, like the, the Southern Gothic, was a was a form of like literature that came out of of the time that was really 
if you look that up too, Andrew, read the definition of Southern Gothic. But I think the the great like some people know like to kill a mockingbird is is Southern Gothic or Oh Brother We're Out That was Southern Gothic. And it was kind of this idea, like it was taking this antebellum culture of like honor and um and uh external morality and then uh t- keeping that but then showing the hypocrisy. it's all everyone was a hypocrite, right? In in Southern Gothic stories, everyone's a hypocrite. Everyone's like like secretly evil and uh yeah it, it was all connected in some time it's really interesting what's what's the definition so southern you, gothic is a mode or genre prevalent in literature from the early 19th century to this day characteristics of southern gothic include the presence of irrational horrific and transgressive thoughts desires and impulses grotesque characters dark humor and an overall angst-ridden sense of alienation the first southern gothic writer to fully explore the genre's potential Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Someone just mentioned last week that How to Kill a Mockingbird is one of his favorite books yeah. to this day. Yeah. I haven't read it. I'm kidding. I've, read, read it? I've, seen, well, I've seen the movie with Gregory Peck, which is, which is amazing. So I haven't read it yet. And I think, I think that was her only book that she ever wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. uh, I forgot her name, but... Um, Harper Lee. Harper Lee, yeah. So, so that's a Southern Gothic book. And that's one of the reasons why I love the South, too, is, is that idea. This idea of this like his hypocrisy that that um, that everyone's everyone's kind of jacked up but but has this like false sense of of not showing it that's not really working and these kind of this like kind of eccentric characters that that was always attractive too because it's so real right and so mm-hmm. the Southern Gothic genre is really really interesting and like William Faulkner is a really big one of that and so I I read uh, As I Lay Dying and I think. Part of it was too, like like the, there was a grand repentance in the South that was being preached in the in the pulpit about how would they 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 need to repent before God would would bless this country again because they were wrong about God blessing this country. It was not true, and uh, and so that was a sentiment in the South. Yeah, it was a sentiment in the South. It was it, it didn't take hold as as full as it should have, obviously, because people what we saw like in Jim Crow wasn't the case, but. Mm-hmm. It was it was there after the war and uh, and so Southern Gothic came out of that too because like when reading like Azalea Dying by William Faulkner it's like this sense of like condemnation like we're all we're all totally depraved um, don't deserve forgiveness and even if there was somebody to forgive us they wouldn't so with Faulkner it's like he believed there was a God but the God saw you and turned away and it's so it's so wow. dark it's so dark but it's so emphatic he was from rural Mississippi like northern Mississippi. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's yeah. so interesting. So we're, what are we, we're about 150 years from the civil war? A hundred and, uh, yeah, 170, I believe now, 165. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 165 years. And I mean, one, one of the things that stands out to me is if you're saying like the South was just burned down and put to rubbish. Yeah. And yet now some of our best cities are in the South. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's almost like I'm just picturing like a, a wildfire that goes through a place and then like new life grows, mm-hmm. you know, after because of the devastation. Now you get that new life. Yeah. Like, how do you think some of the, um, and it's not like, you know, I mean, part of the, you, we don't have the, you know, the old, some of the history that you do have in the Northeast. Yeah. But again, like when you fly into, I don't know if you've flown into like, like some of those airports in New York City, I mean, even Philly, but yeah. if you think of like um, 
what's the big one in New York City? Oh, the um, like um, not LaGuardia. Kennedy. Or, Ken- yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking Kennedy. I mean, some of those, and I know it's a huge city, but some of those airports you go into, and it's like it feels like you're in a prison. Like yeah. the, the the airport's so old, and the and like how you funnel through security lines, it's kind of dark, and the ceilings seem too low, and it just seems like that infrastructure has been there too long and yeah. it's too cold. And, and then you fly into an airport like Austin and it's awesome and it's vibrant, yeah, yeah, it's new yeah. and it's fresh, you know, even, even BNA. Sure. Um, so is, is like some of that, it's just because this was all burnt to rubble. We rebuilt and we rebuilt better and we have better weather down here and people are moving yeah. here and we have less taxes and there's less regulation and, and people are coming down here and now you have this new life. I mean, is sure. that sort of how it, how it happened? Yeah, it's a great testament of like of the resilience of 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 Americans or resilience of of of, hu- of humans in general. I think, and like we were saying, it coming full circle, people moving from California or Chicago or New York here to like southern states is wow. To know that that's happening now is, is yeah. unbelievable, considering the history. What do you think are some of the cultural ramifications that we still deal with today? Not deal with in a negative sense, but that we is part of the culture now that we never knew, hey, this came from the Civil War. Uh, I think the the Southern Bible Belt is an interesting thing. That actually was a big part of the Civil War. Yeah. How, how so? So uh, just talking about the, the Southern Army, uh, there was the, the Second Great Awakening. I don't know a lot about it, but I know it was happening in the 1860s, and then it, it, it came, it, it fully came about with, within within the time period of the war. So there's great books about chaplains in, in the Southern armies that, that wrote these big volumes about all the occurrences that happened in the wars. And there was tremendous revivals that were happening on both sides, but even more so on the Southern sides. Um, I think it was estimated like 150,000 conversions that happened in, in, in the Southern armies. Wow. And so those people were coming back and that really capstoned the South as a Bible belt in that way because of the, the, and the, there's amazing, I mean, amazing pictures of like, I think during like the winter campaigns in the armies, there was like 60 chapels built in the Southern armies in the war. Um, there was times where like, like the, the, the penny, the penny press was now, now being used where you could print something so cheaply. So like, like denominations now had press uh, uh, could, could printing presses. So they were printing tracks and pocket Bibles. Mm. Pocket Bibles wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. People had family, big family Bibles, but no one had a personal Bible that they could put in their suit jacket. But in the w- Civil War, so many of soldiers were, you can see them having pocket Bibles like um, all over the war. And it was coming from, from denominations that were distributing them. And that's super cool because it never happened before. And the South, the Lee's army was so, was so prevalent because the the South had generals that were like overtly Christian that wanted like there's stories where there's like a like a Mississippi regiment and they're doing a prayer meeting and like A P Hill and Lee are 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 going past it in a in a on a horse and they dismount and join the prayer meeting with these infantrymen right and so they they were it was they were really supportive of that even in the context of them rationalizing the evil of slavery with religion mm-hmm. but God's still working in this right. in this crazy context it's so hard to to navigate uh, without offending. It's so hard to, but it, but it was true and it was beautiful and, and people, people came to the Lord in amazing ways. Uh, and it was because of, of, of them knowing the fight they're, they're the, knowing the fight that they're fighting is a losing fight. 
Mm-hmm. And there's no, and it, it became really prevalent after Gettysburg, uh, even more so. But there's beautiful stories of get, like uh, uh, um, messengers with like tracks, gospel tracks, and Bibles being crowded out as they enter the camps of people wanting so badly to get a Bible. Mm. And particularly uh, with the Southern Army, with the Southern Army, and that was true in the Northern Army too. But like people like Grant and Sherman and and George Thomas, these guys weren't like over, they weren't these Christian generals like the South was in that sense. They were Christians, mm. but they weren't that way because the industrial they in 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 the North they weren't uh, they were more industrialized. They were more secular in that way. That was those ideas that we know of modern ideas were more prevalent in the North in that way. So. Uh, so, but the, so the South was really supportive of that. And there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, generals that like knew that was really important to the morale of the, of the battle. So it's so cool to know that God was working in that way. And like all the, all the, the amazing revivals, they, there was a revival in the civil war on both what's, sides. What's interesting about that is when you look at the Southern army and you mentioned at some point they knew they were fighting a losing battle, mm-hmm. but they were still fighting mm-hmm. and you have this this sort of just this devastation and oppression and suffering and everything going on. And that sort of, that sort of breeds this revival among these people. Well, that's what was happening in slavery too. You know, like a lot of slaves were, they were, they were Christians. That was their hope, you know? And, and, and the, like the message of like, um, you know, the the people of Israel, the people of God, like being brought through suffering and out of Egypt and to a better land. And like, a lot of the um, the slaves resonated with that message, yep. they and they saw felt their like story, yeah. they saw their story in that, and it's they beautiful. and they had hope, and they had. I mean, we have these great um, gospels and things, and 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 they sang a lot too, you know, because the, sure. a lot of them didn't know how to read, but they knew how to. Right, you, you can remember a song, you know, and and they had this. Just it was a very um, well, like the like the the Christian religion, I guess, if you want to put it in that way, was very prevalent among slaves. Totally. You know, and so yeah. you have this born out of suffering and mm-hmm. and hardship and devastation. It's beautiful, and, and yeah. put put your gospel hat on and see the lens through how God's working. It's it's a great, it's a beautiful thing in this terrible situation on on all sides of of of, of the the conflict. I mean, I, I love that. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful story. What do you think then are some of the takeaways from the civil war that we can apply to today because some would say we're kind of on the brink you know of us of i don't know if it's a civil war or if it's just greater unrest yeah what are some of the lessons that looking back on the civil war that we can apply to today i think one of the greatest virtues in life is compromise and when you say that it people think of like moral compromise where you you're like compromising your ideals but i'm not in that and not in that sense but in the sense that we are all tragedians, especially in a political way, where every situation is not entirely good. And I know the Civil War was, was fought, it was fought because they failed to compromise on both sides. That the South failed to compromise and the North, the abolitionists failed to compromise as well. And it, it, it made it worse. It, it made it a terrible thing. And so... Yeah, I think I think one of the greatest virtues in life is compromising in a lot of ways and knowing that every choice you make is is a a tragedy. Um it's it's hard it's so hard to to try to put words to that idea, mm-hmm. but uh it it's it's what I'm saying is I think like with with the apostle Paul talking about the injustice in the Roman Empire and talking about like 
people in the early church being slaves and knowing that like he could have made like this like violent abolitionist movement where they started killing slave masters and all that kind of stuff for a righteous cause. But he saw in light of the gospel that, that God was working in a different way mm-hmm. and that he, God works in the slow way, uh, uh, person to person, um, um, in, 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 in living rooms, um, and, and, and that the, the Roman empire was eventually destroyed. Um, but it wasn't. And so this anti-revolutionary sense is what I'm saying of, of this slow kind of trust in what God's doing mm-hmm. and, and not having to take up arms to change the world so greatly and so quickly, because as we see in the 20, 20th century with so many things that happened, like with a lot of the totalitarian regimes, it was for good things. They wanted to make the world a better place, but taking, taking that means from God's hands to theirs created hell on earth. It was the opposite of what they thought. They were trying to create heaven on earth. They, tra- they created hell on earth. And so I think it gives us a trust in God. So there's that one thing. And then the other thing was the picture taking the hearts of the veterans that fought in the war and bring it upon ourselves to where, as I said, like the, the enemies embracing each other as brothers, hugging each other as brothers. Um, and that being the case, that unity, man, it's so, everybody wants that though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every, that sounds great, but it's so much more complicated than that. But I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's a faith, a faith in, 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 in this, in this American experiment and knowing that we, we're doing good things are happening and God's, God's working and, and, uh, and it's by his grace. It's not that we deserve it, but it, it, he's working even through the civil war. He worked mm-hmm. in tremendous ways. So, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, those, those are, those are strong points, man. And yeah. I think they're super relevant for today. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things that it's sad to see happening when we disagree on secondary and third area, third area issues. Now yeah. we make such a big deal about it and we hurt people and kill people based on like secondary and tertiary opinions. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is at that point. It's opinion. Yeah. So it's, it is this lack of compromise. It's my way or the highway and it's yeah. on all sides. Yeah. And, um, and that compromise comes change. from Christianity where you was like, wow, like I'm, I'm a sinner. Like the, the evil and the justice world is actually in my heart as well. Exactly. Right. And so how, how could I be the savior of the world in that sense when the, the problem of the world is actually ingrained inside of me as well in some way? And, and if anybody's honest with themselves, they know that, mm-hmm. right? So, so if that's true, there's this introspective aspect to it that's always been part of like the Judeo-Christian West where, and that's what the product of abolition, the product of women's suffrage, all that kind of stuff, civil rights, it all came from that. It's seeing like, wow, you know, like God's, God's working and, and, and we're not living up to, to the ideals that God has given us. And, and the reason why we can now is because of his grace, mm-hmm. not his, his, um, his law. It's, it's because of the grace itself. Yeah. I didn't know that the Bible Belt was sort of born out of the Civil War. Yeah. That, that was new to me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, I mean, it was obviously the revivals, but I mean, you think about every man had something to do with the Civil War after, mm-hmm. after the Civil War in the South, and so then it became the Bible Belt. So yeah, it was, it was a big deal part of it. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. And it's, and it's good to hear some of those individual stories like Jeb, you know, and to see like there was guys, it's just not as black and white as 
good versus bad, you know, the right side versus the wrong side. Sure. I mean, you have, you have this man of character and, and, and integrity and yeah. honor on both sides of that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that seems to be an area of concern as well. Like I've even wondered like at what point in this country do we lose enough of that reliance and that integrity and honor and strength as a culture where if we're really called upon to do like a world war three or something, I know at that point it's probably nuclear, right? So it's less about yeah. manpower, but, yeah. but still, I mean, now, now we're trying to get, we're trying to look for the good men and there aren't any, yeah. you know, but I guess there always will be some. Right. Yeah. If there's, if there is a civil war and it won't be someone mobilizing an, an army with uniforms out in the open, wanting to fight on the battlefield with honor, that's not going to happen. Right. Right. Cause that would, that's a, that's an amazing thing that like, like these rebels would say, I'm going to put on a, an official outfit and I will fight you man to man, fair to, you know, fair yeah. and square. Right. It will be this terrible terrorism and guerrilla warfare. And yeah. So yeah. that, that, that is a moral thing in and of itself that, that someone would want to fight the way 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 honorable men should. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, you're right. And that didn't. Yeah. Some of them didn't do that after the war reconstruction. There's a lot of guerrilla forces that did all this stuff, and a lot of the big characters yep. said, "No, no, no, stop that stuff." Yeah, and yeah, they, yeah. So, well, thanks for talking us through that. I feel yeah. like I have a greater understanding, but more importantly, appreciation. Yeah, of our nation's history. Sure, you know, and that's. I think that's a. It's easy with things that are going on today, particularly I think with people my age or our age were yeah. sort of like, you know, hey, we didn't have it all right when this country was founded and yeah. America's the worst. There's sort of this anti-American sentiment. Sure. You know, sure. but when you hear these stories and understand the history, we have a a lot going for us as well. Mm-hmm. And we do stand on the shoulders of giants. And totally. those giants made mistakes and they weren't, yep. they didn't always have it right. Yeah, and we did make awful mistakes. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. Slavery should not have been part of the founding of this country. Yeah. There's no question there. Yeah. I remember there's a beautiful story. I'll end with this. Is like, uh, I was on, I was on uh, uh, um, Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga. And it's a beautiful, beautiful there's a battle there. And uh, there's can- cannons up there. There's a military park. And I was, I was walking up there alone. And there was, this, there was this couple that came up and I started talking to them. They were an Indian couple. And they were, they had, they, one lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the other lived, lived in Los Angeles. And they were meeting in Tennessee. They were in arranged marriage and they're both living in America, now de facto Americans, finding out what it means to be an American. And they're at this military park of a war. They have no idea what, it, what it's about. They don't have any idea why these guys fought in, in real, the real sense. And, and I had told them, I told them, you know what? I don't have any connection to the, the men that fought here. Do you know that? Like in blood. I have no connection to these men at all. And they said, are you serious? Because they looked at my skin color and they thought I was American, historical American, a white American. I said, no, no, no. My, my family came over Ellis Island. I have no connection to these men at all. And I said, but, but the love of this country makes me, when I go to a battlefield, I start, I start crying. And having, having this, 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 this sorrow and this joy and this uh, gratitude for these men that I don't really have any connection to, but the, this, this, this belief and this, this love I have for this great nation and what it's given to me and how God has used it to bless me so much. I said, you're a part of that too. Yeah. And I said, you have just as much connection as I do to these yeah. guys. And, and the only thing we need to do is to fall in love with the nation and fall in love with its story and to embrace its, 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 um, its, its tragedies, its sin, its, its forgiveness, and its, its way forward. 
and 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 I told them I told them that, and they're these new Americans. I said, man, you can you can you can love the these men that died for you just as I can. Yeah, and that was a beautiful thing. And That's they, so beautiful yeah, and powerful. Yeah, they really they really were receptive to that. Yeah, and it's yeah. what's so beautiful about this country too. Mm-hmm. I think uh, in in one of the stats I was reading or seeing earlier was is it accurate that in both California and Texas the minority is actually the majority? Yeah, I, th- I think I believe that's I read true, that yeah. somewhere. Yeah, so you know we uh, there is so many different people here from all different walks of yep. life and mm-hmm. from so much different like diverse background and from all parts of the globe and yeah. we can come here and that's what makes America exactly. Yeah, and, and that's that's the greatest thing. I hope it never that idea that where we were all we're all united together in some large sense with the same heart doesn't fade away. Because even like it, during this uh the lean up to the Civil War, there's like the no no nothing party. There was whole political parties that almost won the presidency that were completely built on on prejudice. And it wasn't the prejudice you think you think I'm talking about. It was prejudice of Germans, French, and like Dutch. And it was all built on racial stereotypes of other Scotch-Irish white people saying, oh, look at these, ter- these ho- terrible Germans flocking in here to our farmlands. Mm. And it was all based on prejudice of other Euro- white Europeans. Mm-hmm. And they almost won. And so <laughs> that's always been a part of our story, but it's, it's a weird historical contract that we never talk about. Yeah. And so, uh, but what I'm saying is those Germans became Americans and those things. Yes. And uh, I think that can, that can still happen. I, I hope and, and pray that it does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, dude, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for coming by. Yeah. This was really great. We awesome. cover everything you wanted to cover? Um, yeah, I think so. Pretty I enjoyed good. it. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. We will have you back on again at some point. All right. Most certainly. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, Sam. Thanks for coming right. by. Appreciate it. Yeah.